Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. What's shaking? How you doing? What's baking? Uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit taken aback. I wasn't expecting that much exposition, but everything is good. It's grand. Uh, I don't know if you're going to keep our earlier or any vestige of our earlier introduction in, but... For those of you who want to know, are curious about the behind the scenes of this podcast, I want you to know that we did a little bit of a shout out to 80s, maybe 90s kids with a little bit of a micro machines right there. If you remember micro machines. So there we go. <laughs> Anyone listening to this could just play the episode at like three times normal speed and get the same effect. Exactly. Exactly. So. You know, just a, a little bit of nostalgia for y'all. Um, It'll make more sense if you listen to the entire episode. We'll have a, we'll throw it in there. We'll throw in our bloopers as a post credits bonus <laughs> to dedicated listeners. <laughs> I just, I just feel like it would have been if we had not flubbed it. It would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll try it again next week. There we go. There we go. But speaking of uh, alternate takes, this week's episode, we are going to be going over Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, in which Spider-Man has his own alternate takes with alternate universe size. Universe size or universes? Universe-i. Uh, it's, a, it's a plural for universes. Okay. Never heard that before. <laughs> That's because I made it up. I see. Yeah. <laughs> what else have you made up for us today, Albert? Oh, I mean, the the night's young, so there's a good chance I'm going to make up a lot more crap as the night goes on. Because I'm uh, famously known for making things up when I get stuck in a corner. Because you did you did graduate from MSU. Make stuff up. Yeah, exactly. University. <laughs> uh, the Ohio State <laughs> Penitentiary. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, we're gonna be talking about across the Spider Verse. It's our episode's a little late, but hey, it's all good, man uh it 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 makes it so that everybody's probably seen it by now and this is your chance to catch up with us and go over it and we'll be able to jaw about it without having to worry about spoilers yeah so i guess we're just going to be spoiling it right away from the get-go uh i mean we can go into the intro a little bit and just talk the about the background stuff before we dive right in um okay know, yeah Luke, let's do Luke that is his father 
<laughs> there we go. <laughs> Luke is his father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what movie is this? Uh, <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Look, how else do you up the antes? Darth Vader was Luke's father. How how else do you up the ante even more except to make Luke Spider-Man's father? Okay, it is a a Marvel or it is a Disney property, so I suppose they can do anything in the multiverse. Yeah, there's, like Kevin Garnett said, anything is possible. Possible. <laughs> <laughs> what language uh, is he speaking today, dude? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just here. <laughs> so on our podcast, I don't think we ever talked about Into the Spider-Verse from 2018. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that that you wanted to share before we discuss the new movie. Um, I well, I I was gonna say, I I think we did do an episode on it. Did we? I, I'd have to go back and check. I believe we did. <laughs> yeah, but Dang, I could be wrong. That's news to me. Yeah, because I'm I'm pretty sure we talked about it. Because when you said we didn't, that was news to me. Um, anyways, that being said, um, I, 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 from what I remember, we were generally positive on it. It was something where I think right from the get-go, our expectations for it were pretty low because the source material wasn't anything that we were too fond of conceptually. And, you know, the idea of a multiverse of Spider-Man's on its own wasn't something that really excited me or you know filled me with enthusiasm about watching that first one but from what i remember of our conversation when we did watch it we we did hey, enjoy I, it i, I just it. i just looked it up i looked up our list of spider-man episodes we did not do an episode dedicated to into the spider-verse okay okay but we, mm-hmm. we probably talked about it at some point while we were talking about other Spider-Man stuff. Mm-hmm. So if anyone wants to hear us talk about it, listen to every single one of our episodes. <laughs> and eventually you'll probably hear that conversation. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> How's that sound, Albert? I I will accept, accept that because that is a, a, a cheap plug for the day. So there we go. Um, well, okay. That being said, I will say that I do think it wasn't an episode that, or it's it's not a concept that I had a lot of hope for, but at the time, watching that first one, I did enjoy it. I, I thought they were able to pull off a pretty lackluster idea uh, in a more than satisfactory, satisfactory way. I did enjoy that first movie. How about yeah. you? Same here. Like I definitely have a lot of love for Miles Morales, and I enjoy Spider Gwen, but I'm not a big fan of the multiverse and these multiversal kind of stories. I think we might have briefly gone on a tangent about multiversal stories in last week's episode, but I think when I do read a multiversal story or or watch one, I guess. It's it's got to be done 
well and done in a way that holds some kind of internal logic. And I feel like most of the time, multiversal stories are pretty lazy and don't cling to any kind of logic. They just sort of give you a broad picture of alternate versions of all the characters that you've enjoyed in the past. So they can be lazy without having to try to explain people's like these alternate characters uh characteristics or anything you know they can just kind of like slap an eye patch on somebody or put a mohawk on a character and then you'll know he's an alternate version of so and so yeah so there's a lot of shorthand yeah. involved without having to actually do any character development exactly it just really feels like it's just really navel gazy most of the time it's the it's selling the idea of variation and change as the primary selling point for essentially the kid in all of us, right? It's like, wouldn't it be cool yeah. if it was Spider-Man, but he's a ninja? Wouldn't it be cool if it was Spider-Man, but he's, you know, a 1920s gangster? <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if he was Spider-Man, but he was... Captain America, whatever, right? It's yeah. just really low-hanging, uninteresting fruit. Because it's the kind it's... of stuff that works when you're trying to sell toys to kids, and uh, yeah. like it reminds me of the '90s when I was a kid and I was buying like Batman action figures, and they would have all these different ones where Batman would have a an alternate suit. Mm -hmm. and granted, that was just an alternate suit, but. It's the same principle, you know, like there's a, a a toy of the character and it's not just the regular iconic version of the character, but it's a, a Batman wearing a neon yellow suit because uh, I guess that's what he wears when he goes scuba diving. Yeah, yeah. Or the other thing it makes me think of is like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and how there was that period of time where after you've already made the turtles and you've made all the villains, now you've got to do these different versions of them. So it's like, oh, a deep sea diver, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, <laughs> or there's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle who's a beach bum or stuff like that, where, you know, for the collector, uh, the kind of person who has to have everything, that that's a thing that matters. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a novelty that tends to lose its luster fairly quickly, I would think. But uh, but then again, people are collecting, you know, the first appearance of the spider car or whatever. So who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, like I, maybe I don't quite have my finger on the pulse of your average person, but well, your average person also doesn't have my respect. So <laughs> <laughs> so we both are missing something in that equation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like with Into the Spider-Verse, the original movie, I think I would have been fine if that was as far as they took the idea of the multiverse. Like it was fine to have an introduction to Miles and then to throw Spider-Gwen and a few other alternate Spider-Men into the mix. And I felt like that movie in and of itself was satisfying enough and enjoyable enough and a solid um, 
first movie for Miles Morales that didn't really think it was necessary to revisit the multiverse concept. You know, like I would have preferred a second Miles Morales movie that was just about him and his world without having to deal with multiversal junk. So yeah. when they did announce what the sequels were going to be, I kind of rolled my eyes, man. I wasn't super excited or enthused about that concept. Mm-hmm. I I don't think I was enthused with it because it was already territory that we had gone over. But I don't think, I mean, I guess if we're going to go into our actual review of it or, you know, just our initial uh, assessments of what we saw, like, I don't think I, I disliked it as much as you did. Um, Wait, are you talking about into the Spider-Verse or across the Spider-Verse? Oh, sorry. Are we, we're talking about. I was, I was still talking about into the Spider-Verse. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, let me go back to that then. But yeah, uh, yeah. Like so, the very idea of pulling off the idea of this is Spider-Man, but there are going to be a whole bunch of different versions of Spider-Man. Um, in and of itself, was not a very high selling point for me. But I do think that that first movie pulled it off just fine, and um. I remember thinking after the fact that for, okay, I guess the uh, unfiltered version is for a stupid idea, they were able to pull it off in a believable way, you know? Like, Uh I didn't walk out of the theater being upset at what I had watched or feeling like I had wasted two hours. I, I enjoyed the experience. Yeah. And, like, visually, that first movie was kind of a revelation, I think, in animation. Because we hadn't really seen too many other animated films that look like that. It's something that really took the source material and I felt paid a lot of respect and homage to the comics. With the way that the movie imitated the, not only, like, the art style of various comics, but... Also, how it incorporated uh, comic book tools that we usually only see on the printed page or, you know, on a digital screen. But uh, it, it, it used those things and, and put them into animation, which is fairly unusual and I think gave it a lot of its own special spark and a signature style that made it stand out from most other animated movies. Cause I feel like for the most part, we typically get a lot of your standard Pixar style CG animated films. Mm. And there's, there's a lot of CG and in, into the spider verse, but there's also a lot of drawing over the CG as well. And gave it, that gave it a lot of visual character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, like, I do think that, especially in terms of animation, it feels like every generation 
comes in waves, right? Where you have someone that sets a particular style that defines a era of animation or art style. And it goes and stays that way for a very long time until whatever the next thing or art style is that ends up breaking that mold. And that thing becomes the, that thing becomes sort of the standard for the next generation of art styles that are coming out, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say that prior to that, a lot of CG was probably in the Pixar mold. And then that was a mold that remained for a really long time. And then once we saw what they were doing with Into the Spider-Verse, um, we, we have seen that animation style being branched out and being used uh, moving forward. So uh, in in your notes, I saw that you mentioned the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie that's coming out. The new one is kind of done in that style, right? Yeah. So that's that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. But the other thing that I noticed was there was a movie that came out this year, the Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. And I was like skimming through some of that and that actually has some uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse kind of vibes as well. Uh, The Hmm. way that it sort of plays with the the backgrounds and the way that it plays with uh, visual effects, things like that. Um, Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it wouldn't... it, It doesn't really surprise me that this is a visual style because it's it's pretty innovative uh, looking stuff, right? It really plays with all the things that they have available to them uh, in animation to really make it more kinetic and alive and, well, animated. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So is it fair to say that we both had positive thoughts and liked Into the Spider-Verse? I think so. Yeah, I don't feel like we didn't. So what were your initial thoughts leading up to Across the Spider-Verse? I think a lot of my apprehensions were still there because based on what I had already seen of Into the Spider-Verse, like I'd probably be... Well, I'm definitely willing to admit that for something that I wasn't too high on, that first movie did prove me wrong. Uh, you know, I was open to admitting that it wasn't as dumb or as silly as I thought it was going to be. And I ended, like I said, I ended up actually enjoying it. So uh, going into this, I don't think I was ready to fully get on board the um, Spider-Man multiverse train, but I, I, I definitely was... I definitely had the same apprehensions if only because in my mind I was telling myself, well, we've already seen what they've done there. And it's hard for me to imagine going back to that well and them knocking it out of the park because really it's it's already treaded territory at this point. So I'd really have to see, I'd really have to be curious. I'd, I'd really have to see what they end up doing with it before mm-hmm. I make any judgments. So that that was what I thought going into it. What are your thoughts 
about the Spider-Verse source material, specifically the Spider-Verse comic book storyline? Quite frankly, I don't really have too much respect or enjoyment for that era of Spider-Man. Dan Slott wrote it for, I want to say like 10 years, if not more. Um, he wrote it Spider-Man. for... Yeah, he wrote Spider-Man for a really long time. And I, I think you can say that in his entire era of Spider-Man, there are quite a few low points in there. And Spider-Verse, for me, would have to be one of them. Uh, like, when you look at the biggest story arcs that came out of that era, and if if you had to cherry pick them to try to decide what were the low points or at least low points by our standards. I'd say it was Spider Island, um, Superior Spider-Man, and then Spider-Verse. But for the people that like Dan Slott and the people that love that era, those are probably considered high points. So take from that what you will. But those were all just really gimmicky Spider-Man stories that, yeah, they, they all kind of revolved around just kind of just very silly premises, right? So Spider Island was, oh, what if everybody got spider powers? What would that be like for Spider-Man? And then you had Superior Spider-Man, which we've talked about here, but what if Dr. Octopus took over Spider-Man's brain and had to be Spider-Man for a while? It's all, it's, yeah, it's just really dumb, you know, if I, if I just, just describing it purely based on a single sentence synopsis, it's, it's stupid. And (laughs) the Spider-Verse that he, the the Spider-Verse that he wrote was, in short, just, what if Spider-Man existed with all the different versions across a multiverse of Spider-Man's? And and just based on that, it's a pretty lazy and stupid idea. Don't forget, he brought back Morlin for that story. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Morlin was so a pretty he dumb took, concept, too. He, he took a concept from another bad writer of Spider-Man and revived it. It, it, it It's, yeah, the, these aren't... Maybe yeah, you could make the argument. Morlin is this guy who fights all spider-themed characters across the multiverses, I guess. I think like, his original concept was he f- he's he's a being that fights animal totems or something like that. And yeah. And I guess spider totems, I think. Yeah, specific oh, sure. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Like, well, I don't know. I don't think I'm... there's any way to clean this up to make it not stupid. It, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty dumb concept. Yeah. But yeah, so Dan Slott revived. Oh, what I was going to say is maybe you can say that by sheer dollar amount, these comics were successful in a monetary or fiscal sense, but they weren't good comics by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um they were they were basically comics that were it felt like they were they came in a period of time where the the consensus to them was that the idea of spider-man was 
a stale one because we had already done we had already had so many years of spider-man as a, an angsty teenager trying to juggle his superhero life with his teenager life right and they had just done so many years of that and they've even aged him up and they tried so many things to try to i guess recapture the glory days of spider-man but once they ran out of those ideas they just started throwing things at the wall to see well what if instead of being bitten by a radioactive spider what if it was like a spider god that had bestowed him with spider powers Mm -hmm. but it just took the form of a radioactive spider (laughs) you know stuff like that you know just really trying to they were trying trying to apply new mythology and new lore to spider-man that they didn't need to apply to him because all it ended up doing was just making him convoluted yeah exactly that was a bunch of extra baggage that spider-man really didn't need in his world and not only did they introduce it they j michael straczynski doubled down on it and he had a couple big storylines with morlin and when he left the book seemed like there were a few years when morlin was relegated to the to limbo or whatever and then i guess i wasn't paying attention and then dan slot brought him back for spider-verse yeah and i think zeb wells is writing with him right now or trying to bring him back again um okay i don't know uh like for whatever reason um they keep bringing him back because i don't know I, i wonder if they think he's you know, a top tier villain or something, but he he's basically up there with Null in terms of lameness. <laughs> like, I mean, and they even has... look kind of alike. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They they're both these sort of pale freaks with long white hair. Maybe they try to. I think he 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 wears like a suit or something, where yeah. Null has this weird. Uh, want to be armor venom armor I, I don't know it's it's all dumb it's ugh. well Moreland has been around for a little over 20 years now so maybe kids who grew up reading spider amazing spider-man from that era you know now they're adults with disposable income of their own and looking for nostalgic villains from their youth i could i could imagine Somebody out there being like, "Oh, they're bringing Moreland back. This could be the the Moreland story that really, you know, levels him up and brings him into maturity for a modern age or whatever." Yeah, I, I think he's just he's a bad seed to begin with. So, so you could make the argument that there's nowhere to go, no no room for improvement there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on the uh, the source material that was used to produce Into the Spider-Verse? I mean, in terms of just the Spider-Verse comic itself, I definitely have no respect for it whatsoever. I think mm-hmm. I think all the reasons that we just laid out, like, yeah, it was not good comics. I don't even think I finished reading it. Probably something that I borrowed from the library, tried to read, and quit. 
uh, before I got too deep, but knowing what I know about Dan Slott, like I've definitely read a bunch of Dan Slott comics and I've tried reading a bunch of his Spider-Man stuff over the years. I just don't like his stuff, man. Like I'm sure he's a nice person and all, but as far as a comic book writer, uh, I, I can't really, it's hard to think of like good Dan Slott comics. I think like, his best thing might be that first run he did on She-Hulk. Hmm. I think that was pretty decent from him. Probably his best thing. He did do one Spider-Man comic I liked, which was probably from the same era of that early or mid-2000s when he was doing She-Hulk. But he did a five-issue Spider-Man Human Torch miniseries that was something. drawn by Ty Templeton. And... Actually, I I think the best thing he did was probably a Silver Surfer because Mike that's Allred drew that one. Say. Yeah, that's, that's what I was gonna say. That's gotta uh, be you, his best thing. You had like some high praise for that. All things considered. <laughs> well, I have a lot of love for Mike Allred, and Silver Surfer is probably my favorite yeah. Marvel character. So, like, I would I would say that's gotta be Dan Slott's best work. But I don't I don't necessarily think he's a good writer. It was more like. He had a really great artist on a character that I enjoy. So it was like lightning in a bottle for him, you know? Like, there's no way he could replicate that again unless he... He would have to have really done something really bad in order to make that just... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh... But as as far as the, the other stuff that's in these movies, specifically when you talk about miles or spider gwen or spider-man 2099 Mm -hmm. i feel like i have a healthy amount of love for all of those characters like spider-man 2099 is a character that we had when we were kids and i don't know if you ever read too many of those issues but that was something i did like uh, when it first came out i kind of fell away from it but I remember those early issues being pretty into dumb, but out I never. Of the 2099 stuff. It, it was probably the best thing out of all that, out of all the 2099 stuff. Yeah, especially early on. I never had a chance to finish reading it because, you know, I was a kid and it was it wasn't easy to, like, religiously buy every issue of a series, at that yeah. age. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I do remember liking it. Uh, probably is the best of the 2099 books, but there was that one Warren Ellis run on Doom 2099. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. So that... even though that run was a little shorter because it came at the end of the of the line, it I do think that was a good run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's as probably long as you can ignore that... Uh, well. well, it aged well until we learned that Warren Ellis is yeah, a creep. Yeah, yeah. But true, true. If you can, <laughs> if you can ignore that, <laughs> the writing aged well. The, the, uh, what's it called? The reputation of the man did not. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Did you watch I, the Spider-Man 2099 as a kid? I I think I bought a couple of issues of it. I. I'd have to say that his look was 
probably something that endeared me to him more than any story that I can remember. Yeah. All these years later, I really don't remember the story details at all. Um, I do remember like bits and pieces, though. They're just the version of the dystopian Blade Runner world that they developed for themselves was definitely different than the regular Marvel Universe that we had. Mm -hmm. Because I remember... I forget if it was in Spider-Man 2999 or Punisher 2099, but there was this one issue where this dude who who wasn't a main character by any means, but uh, it was a guy who was on the run. And I guess he, he owed some creditors. And because he wasn't able to pay the creditors back, it was legal in the Marvel 2099 universe for the creditors to come and take this dude's organs because <laughs> that was their collateral. <laughs> it's a pretty wild idea, but um makes you look forward kind to of, the future. But it I will say that on a meta commentary level, it's an idea that was kind of ahead of its time too. Um if you look at it purely in terms of how much access to medical care costs for your average person in this country and if you don't have medical care you're essentially stuck between you know choosing to pay your rent or you know pay your next for your next meal or your utilities or whatever or your personal well-being and it's this constant like leveraging of your personal health over you know your your daily necessities um mm-hmm. yeah it, it wasn't the first time well okay that comic might have been the first time that i had seen that uh that sort of what's it called that that sort of commentary played out but i've seen stories since then that have played with that same idea so yeah, it, it does feel like they were a little ahead of their time in that regard. Yeah, and I think like a lot of those kind of cyberpunk type stories, the 2099 comics did have a lot of stuff about corporations taking over and essentially superseding the government the and running the country. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, these past 30 years or so, corporations have only grown more and more powerful. It hasn't, yeah, it hasn't looked good. It hasn't really done much to combat the initial premise that businesses run the country or moneyed interests run the country. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question about the 2099 comics as a whole for you, though, because was, this was something that I was never super sure of. Sure. So the 2099 line... Uh, all the comics in that line took place in the year 2099, right? But did that mean that all the stories took place within that one year? Or did like did they ever get to like 2100 or 2101? That is a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if like the the year ever changed. I mean, I think if I had to guess... 
2099 was just kind of the branding for it, but I don't think it was ever meant to imply that the stories exclusively took place only in some sort of universe where every year is 2099. That would be hell. <laughs> it was perpetually 2099. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it might as well be a version of uh, the Marvel Universe where it's Groundhog's Day, where every morning they wake up and they just do the same thing over and over again. <laughs> uh, what about Miles Morales? Do you have any particular love for that character? Um, if I had to be honest, not really. I don't have any particular hate for him either. But I will say that I haven't really read too much of the Brian Michael Bendis Ultimate Spider-Man stuff. I... I think there was just so much of it. Initially, I was reading along with his Ultimate Spider-Man, but it it's a massively long run. So after a while, I think I just told myself, I'm going to wait till it's done and I'll just read it all as a chunk. And since then, he's moved on from you know Ultimate Spider-Man to Miles Morales Spider-Man and he wrote, you know, that for a bunch of years too. So there's a whole bunch of stories that are out that I really haven't had a chance to check out. So I was aware of Miles Morales, but I don't think he was. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have too much of a basis of uh, understanding of him beyond, you know, just the shallow superficial stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd say my first exposure to him was probably. Yeah. Into the spider verse. And I did enjoy that, so I definitely have more of an appreciation for Miles Morales now than I have in the past. Have you gone back and read any of the Miles Morales comics? I haven't. It's I got a whole bunch of stuff to read, man, so it's I'm constantly just picking and choosing uh my priorities and my priorities just happen to be what what stuff is taking up space in my house so that I can read it and decide what I'm going to do with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's definitely a backlog of comics that I just have not gotten to. What about Spider-Gwen? Have you read Spider-Gwen stuff? I haven't. See, that's the thing. I, there's okay. so much Spider-Man stuff that I haven't read. Um, I mean, it doesn't help that right after JMS, you had this sort of period of time where they had a bunch of different writers and they were just kind of testing the waters to see what would fit. And then eventually they would go to Dan Slott and Dan Slott wrote it for a bunch of years. I did read some of the Nick Spencer Spider-Man and that was fine. You know, uh, I did like Nick Spencer and I thought his Spider-Man was fine enough. Um, it's probably not the quintessential Spider-Man for me, but well, here's what I was the, the other thing I was going to say. I do think that we mentioned earlier that Spider-Man is a character where even though he's got the biggest name recognition in the world and you know, he's this flagship character from Marvel, they're constantly trying to do things to I guess revitalize the concept of Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. So they've done a lot of things to Spider-Man in recent years. Um, so much so to the point it almost feels like they've 
dug this like giantly massive hole and even when they do do something <laughs> good it's it's a drop in the bucket compared to like all the other stuff that's out there um are you speaking of spider-man as a franchise or peter parker specifically or i'd say both okay i'd say both like i definitely that definitely applies to peter parker or spider-man as a franchise but you know they've definitely tried to cash in on the spider family over the years yeah um I, i do think I have more interest in something like spider gwen and miles morales than i do a lot of the other stuff that they've got out there but they have you don't want to so read many... the king in black i don't want to read the king in black i don't really have too much interest in silk i don't really have too much interest in i don't know what aranya well maybe i might have didn't sean mckeever do some of those i don't think that was him okay then, but he okay, did write. He did that. write. Spider-Man loves Mary Jane. Yeah, that's probably one that of the better great. ones because it's a simpler Spider-Man story that doesn't try to sell you on a gimmick as your as your in to Spider-Man. You know, because it's a really just stripped down, simplified version of Spider-Man, which is yeah, they're teenagers, and this is about them liking each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's an approach that I wish more people would take. But I don't know. I do have some interest in the Zeb Wells Spider-Man just because I do kind of enjoy Zeb Wells. I liked some of the shows that he worked on. I liked his Modoc show and I liked his uh, Super Mansion. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think that's got some promise. But. Well, uh, the other thing I was going to say is the the other thing that they're constantly doing to Spider to Peter Parker Spider-Man is they're constantly messing with his status as either a bachelor or as someone who's married to Mary Jane. It's like every time you get a new writer, his status quo changes on that front and they just can't figure out what they want to do with him. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that since you've brought it up cuz sure. I feel like for a lot of people, I guess people who either were familiar with the classic 60s Spider-Man comics or people who kind of grew up with cartoons and whether it's like the 70s or the 80s or even the 90s, I feel like for a lot of us, the classic status quo for Peter Parker is that he's a photographer for the Daily Bugle. And he takes pictures of Spider-Man. And, you know, there's always a period when he's a a teenager or a youth. And then, you know, he may go to college. And then at some point he becomes an adult. And then he gets, he ends up with Mary Jane at some point. And by the time uh, the 90s or the mid 80s came about, uh, Spider-Man and Mary Jane got married. So that was the status quo for a, a good amount of time. And then... After that, you know, they did all this other stuff where he thought she was dead, but she was actually just in hiding. So he mm. was away from her, but it was a way for Marvel to do these stories about Spider-Man where he didn't have the quote-unquote baggage of a relationship, which just sounds like an awful way to think about it. 
And then he stopped being a photographer for a while and he became a high school teacher. And then Mm -hmm. at some point, Mary Jane came back into his life and they were a married couple again. And then they, and then Peter ended up, or I guess MJ and Peter ended up making a deal with Mephisto and it ended up destroying their marriage. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just the most ridiculous stuff possible. Like, it wasn't just the divorce. It was the devil that tore him apart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they just kept trying to do different things with his job. Eventually, he becomes he, like he a ended startup. Up becoming, he ended up becoming a, 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 a scientist <laughs> who, who uh, yeah, he, he became a techie who, who started his own company and became this CEO of a multinational conglomerate, like a almost like a yeah. Tony Stark kind of thing. Yeah, it, and it just felt like and then and then over yeah he he swapped (laughs) bodies with dr octopus yeah yeah i don't even know what his official yeah i don't i think right now they might be in one of the phases where they quote unquote take him back to his roots so at least with nick spencer it was a thing where it was like well now he's single again but he has a roommate and his roommate's the boomerang and you know, they just kind of have hijinks, which was certainly more acceptable than a lot of the d- other different things that they were doing with him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, th- I think that's currently uh, in the Zeb Wells run. It's kind of the status quo as well, where he, I want to say that he's dating Mary Jane. He's either on or off with her. Uh, I, it's always one of those two. And, and he's also, uh, yeah, just kind of broke. He he's 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 a broke single guy. That that seems to be the status quo that they always want for him. Uh, is he's it feels like they tell themselves he's got to be relatable to people, so he's got to be a broke single dude dealing with bills because <laughs> that's that's the thing that makes him the most relatable. And it's I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't get I'm not that saying mentality. That, yeah, I don't think that he needs to be broke. I don't think he needs to be a tech giant millionaire either. You know, it's just, I, I, I don't know. I just he need needs some to consistency be single. with him. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he needs to be single either, but it's just a little bit of consistency would be nice. I don't, I think it's ridiculous how they need to take these like drastic shifts in the hopes that one of them is going to be the thing that sticks, you know? Yeah, it's funny how the whole impetus back in, what, the mid-2000s when they destroyed the marriage was because, I guess, editorial or the higher-ups thought that Spider-Man... They didn't want Spider-Man to feel like he was too old. So if he was married, he would feel too old. Hmm. And it's 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 pretty silly to think about it now because, like, in Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse... Yeah, old man Peter. You know, he's like this middle-aged, pot-bellied Spider-Man, and people seem to like him just fine. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, heck, in No Way Home, uh, Tobey Maguire—he ain't a young buck anymore. People yeah. seem to be excited about him being Spider-Man again. Yeah. So it is it, weird to me to think that Marvel's reasoning for making Spider-Man and MJ break up is because they didn't think that people would be down with an older Spider-Man. Yeah. 
I, I thought about it too. And I do think that in this weird way, they did solve their own problem, but they've already done so much damage that it's also too hard to go back and undo at this point. Because mm -hmm. they wanted to do a younger version of Spider-Man that they could sell to young people, right? And what they ended up doing was they ended up creating Miles Morales, and Miles Morales ended up being a huge hit and a phenomena in his own right. And in that way, it it sort of took that problem off the plate, which was how do we create someone that can appeal to younger people, right? But mm -hmm. so so they solved that problem, but now you've already weighed the Peter Parker Spider-Man down with so much baggage that it's just hard to look at him sometimes at, at his comics and not feel like it's stupid, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, hopefully someday someone will come in there and just say, look, I just want a very basic Spider-Man story. We don't need all the bells and whistles or all the extra stuff. We're just going to take him back to his roots. He's going to be a photographer. He's going to be married and it's okay. Right. We're just going to tell stories about him being married and a photographer. Yeah. Or even something like ultimate Spider-Man when ultimate Spider-Man began, like I'm perfectly fine with st stuff like that. Like I still think that's probably the best run of Spider-Man or at least my favorite run of Spider-Man, the, the Bendis run. But, uh, yeah, I guess people don't really think about that when they think of Spider-Man because it's not the quote-unquote real Spider-Man. You know, it's not the 616 Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Feels like therapy today. We're just working out all our Spider-Man issues. <laughs> well, Spider-Man does have a lot of issues. He does. Both in terms of comic book issues and mental problems. <laughs> you want to talk about the movie? Or did sure, you have man. any other things that you wanted to, to discuss before we get into it? I mean, we're almost an hour into the episode. Yeah. <laughs> might be time to start talking about the movie. Sure, sure. All right. Well, at this point forward, we're just going to talk about it without uh, holding back. We're going to go into spoilers. We're just going to be unabashed in terms of our discussion of it. So, you know, if you haven't watched it yet, you've been warned. All right. So let's talk about the the visual aesthetics of the movie and the animation and just the overall look of it. What do you think of all that? I think visually it was scrumptious, man. They really brought comic book style artwork to life with the animation. It's a captivating and effervescent melding of comic book art, graffiti, street art, collage, traditional animation, CG, and other styles into the smorgasbord of a movie. And not only that, but the various styles do affect and enhance a lot of the themes and emotional moments of the story. Like mm. The big example that comes to mind immediately is near the end of the film when Gwen talks to her father again when she's back in her universe. The way that the background shifts colors from this lovely watercolor style to something more indistinct and impressionistic, it's powerful stuff. And I think it really heightens the mood of the moment, heightens mm -hmm. the mood and the emotion. 
like that's the kind of storytelling that we often see in comics but i feel like we rarely see that in western animation which tends to keep things generally even keeled with realism or a consistent style i should say so yeah. i think seeing this sort of thing re- replicated in a superhero movie that probably moved me more than anything else i saw like i think last week when we were talking about deadly class one of the things that came up in our conversation was the coloring and how sometimes the the color palette in that comic just shifts because not because it's realistic or because the light in the scene changes but because of the mood of that specific panel you know like there will be panels that are all set in the same scene or all part of the same scene but the colors will be different because each panel conveys a different message so it's something akin to that in this movie except you know on a much grander scale because it's not strictly limited to just the colors but sometimes it's even the drawing style of the background or even the way that the characters are drawn on the screen i think that's really impressive just the way that they were able to kind of throw all this information at you but it's not confusing you know like it's it's done in a way where i mean i guess i could see like it's possible for someone to be confused that like why everything changes so often but i feel like for people like us who who have read a lot of comics and and watch a lot of animation it's kind of like a language that is easy for us to pick up you know like it makes sense mm. why uh the scene the background would change during a specific scene it makes sense why these characters from different universes are drawn in different styles or even animated in different styles but to see all of that like come together on the screen in a coherent and cohesive way yeah it's a visual tour de force man i i think that's probably the thing that stands out the most to me and and that's what i really appreciate about it yeah yeah i remember well i was going to say i remember talking with you about it and maybe it wasn't on one of our episodes so but in the into the spider verse in the first movie there was it felt like there was a lot of reference to bill sinkowitz's art and you know if you don't if you're not really too familiar with his art style it's this it's a pretty expressive sketchy look and they capture it pretty beautifully in in that first movie in in particular the way that they draw the kingpin in that first movie and how he's just this massive mound of a man and when you look at that version of the kingpin you definitely can go back and recall to the Bill Sinkowitz's version of Kingpin that he's done in the past, right? Yeah, from and, Daredevil: Love and War. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I do also feel like we see sort of flourishes of that of other references in this movie as well and across the Spider-Verse where even though they're all it, it's all the same well, they're not all the same universe, even though the you know there's a through line through all the universes that they go through. They, I think they do enough to make the scenes different enough 
where you can kind of tell that there's something distinct about each universe. And yeah, one, yeah. And one of the things that I was thinking of when I was watching it was I was looking at the scenes with the spot and there, I thought those were pretty amazing looking scenes where they just draw everything that he's done in black and white. And, uh, you know, just to show what it's like for him to exist outside of all the multiverses. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you got the same, or if you had the same thought that I had, but I was looking at that and there was something about that, that reminded me of like Ted McKeever. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Actually, yeah, uh, was, speaking of Ted McKeever, I did see Typeface make a cameo in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the in the universe, uh, the the multiversal prison or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, and Ted McKeever is another guy who who also has this very expressive, sketchy art style, but. I, it's hard for me to describe because I'm just not smart enough and I don't have the words to really differentiate him between someone like Bill Sinkowitz. But just by looking at it, you can definitely tell that they are doing different things, uh, but with yeah. the same kind of texturing. Yeah, I feel like with Bill Sinkovich, his style, like you can you can see his inks uh, very distinctively. Like he... Like anytime he inks another penciler, like it's it just looks like he drew it, you know. And then like with Ted McKeever, I feel like his trademark is that he uses a lot of blacks and he goes pretty heavy on the inks. Like he uses a lot of thick lines and and maybe sometimes it, it even kind of looks like he just splashes the ink on the page, but it it just looks very gritty because of that. But yeah. The other thing about Sinkevich is that he also uses he's also used uh, collage in his work too, and and I feel like that's something that we've also seen in these Spider Verse movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, he's not the only guy to ever do that, but mm-hmm. you know, just since you mentioned him, that was one thing that came to mind. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, when we go to uh, like the Spider Punk universe, like we don't really go to that universe, but we see bits and pieces of it from spider-punk's perspective and that's done in this sort of retro you know 80s uk punk style where they do a little bit of that collaging as well right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so so yeah definitely every universe that they go to is it feels like there's a general rule that exists um in terms of like the physics of all their universes but then They've consciously made this effort to make it so that each universe is distinct and different enough on its own so that subconsciously as a viewer, you recognize it as its own separate universe and entity. Uh, yeah, I. It, it's subtle touches like that that really sell um, the, the visuals of this movie. It, it shows that they're really putting thought into how they're presenting it to you. Yeah, you could tell that the artists studied their comics as they were producing all this work. Mm-hmm. I was also looking at the credits, and I saw that Chris Anka was the character designer in the movie. I'm not familiar with him. Tell us a little about him. Oh, my bad. I thought you uh, knew his work, but yeah, he. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you. Were... I thought you. Uh... I thought you had dropped your jaw in shock because you didn't realize he worked on it or something. But anyway, 
he's a, <laughs> a guy who's done quite a bit of work for Marvel. He's done a lot of comics. And the thing that I point to for in terms of his work is probably the Rainbow Rowell run on Runaways, which I think is one of the better Marvel comics of the past six or seven years or so. Yeah, but see, was I, the, I haven't even read that, so... Yeah, yeah, it's great, man. I think I think you'll really like it um, if you like the original BKV Runaways. Yeah. But Chris Anka, he's got a really distinct style too. Um, like the thing that he's really good at is drawing clothes and and costumes and stuff. Cause his like especially with Runaways, which is a a teen superhero book, like. I feel like a challenge with a lot of artists is drawing convincing teens, but he never had that problem. Like he was always good at making them look like actual teenagers, not only like from a physical standpoint, but in terms of their fashion and their sense of design, the overall style and aesthetic had this youthful feel to it. And I think in this movie in particular, you know, with, Miles and Gwen and so many of the other characters being younger people just really made sense uh, the way that, you know, like how his Chris Anka style would fit there. I'm not sure exactly like how far his contributions went, like if he designed every outfit that everybody wore or what, but like when, when I saw his name in the credits, it did make sense to me that, oh yeah, I haven't seen him doing comics in a while, but if he's been working on this movie, you know, I could easily imagine all the contributions he made to it because the people, the teenagers look like teenagers. They, the stuff that they wore, you know, I'm not a fashionable dude whatsoever, not even when I was young, but looking at the movie, the characters definitely looked like how I would expect teenagers to look. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I imagine that takes a lot of time and effort to, especially as an older person. I, I don't imagine that he's super young, but he's probably younger than us. Yeah, but he's—I—I I doubt he's a teenager. Yeah, he's—I'm pretty sure he's not. Yeah, take that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it. I imagine that it takes a lot of time and effort to put your headspace into the mindset of a teenager to try to imagine what's popular to them and how they would dress. So, uh, you know, again, it, it's, it's kudos to their level of dedication and attention to detail and ability to capture that because, yeah, you know, there could be very much a universe where everyone's just walking around in like dressed like Weedus or something like that. They could look or, like a Mark Bagley teenager. They could look like Rachel Lee Cook or something from <laughs> She's All That. I mean, that would still probably be more convincing than a Mark Bagley teenager. So do you want to talk about the music a little bit? What did you have to say about the music? Um, I can't say that I was really too big on too much of the tracks. It's, it's not something that I was really paying super close attention to, but, uh, I did like the, just the score of it. I, I did think that 
Um, I did catch myself listening to some of that after the movie on the drive home. Like, uh, I think the one piece in particular that I enjoyed was the just the instrumental for Spider-Man 2999, Miguel O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I mean, it's not something where... Well, I'm old, so, you know, a lot of the current music that they have in there isn't anything much that I would really recognize anyways. But, yeah, I, I like, I, I, th- I can definitely appreciate a good score more than, you know, the hip-hop of, uh, hip-hop of the Utes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same here, man. And, yeah, yeah. And I don't really listen to like, or I'm not super in the know on hip hop anyways. So I, I think that you would know. Uh, well, I think you're you're you have a better grasp on that than I do. Yeah, I mean, definitely the instrumental score was solid, but mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. said, the a lot of the vocal tracks. Yeah, I mean we're we're old guys, so it's not really aimed at us, and I get that, but I still think it's straight whack. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right, right. It, it was a bunch of rap music that's aimed at the younger generation, because at least I rewatched um, the first movie before I watched Across the Spider Verse, and at least Into the Spider Verse had stuff like Black Alicious and DJ Shadow. Biggie, Run DMC, Jungle Brothers, like at least it had those tracks in the soundtrack to go along with, you know, Post Malone and the guy from Ray Shremrud or however you pronounce it. But like, I felt like Across the Spider Verse, I I think Nas might have been in one song, but like the rest of it was just straight whack, you know. Like I don't necessarily recognize all of the other songs or the artists, but when I looked him up, yeah, it was like a murderer's row of the exact kind of rap I don't like. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that when we watched it the first time, you had a hard time getting around Post Malone because you uh, you hate him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's whack. He's whack. What other word is there? <laughs> um, yeah, but... I don't know. I, I feel like with these movies in particular, music definitely plays a big part, but I don't know if this movie had a breakout track that was anywhere near on the same level as the stuff that came out in the first movie. Cause I remember when that first movie came out, that post Malone song sunshine was pretty big. Yeah. So it's hard There's to that. say. I, I don't. I don't necessarily pay attention to uh, the radio, or I don't. I wouldn't even know like what's a hit song right now. Like I don't go on YouTube looking at like what are the most played music videos or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so old and and disconnected, you know. So it's like, what's the point? That that music ain't for me anyway. It it makes more sense that Miles Morales would have a whack sense of taste in music because <laughs> he's like sixteen. <laughs> 
Right, right. So if, if you told me like 16-year-olds listen to Race Remrude or Migos or something, I'd be like, okay. I believe it. I believe it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, when you were in high school, did you ever listen to or did you ever go home and like watch that one show in the afternoons where it was all just like music videos on, on public television? I think it was like called California Music Channel or something like that. With Chewy Gomez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> you know, I haven't thought about that for a long time. And I don't know where this came from, but you've you've given me a funny memory today. <laughs> well, I feel like back in the day, because when I was a kid, I didn't have a car and I, I didn't really, you know, usually your way of getting into music pre-internet age was the car radio right it was just what was playing on the radio but because i didn't have my my parents didn't have a car the the only thing that i really had was the the california music channel <laughs> so <laughs> you go on there you turn it on and you kind of see who's calling in and what they want to listen to <laughs> this might sound funny and yeah. It might be a little revealing about the way I grew up, but when I was a kid, my my dad's car did not have a radio, so I never listened to the radio in the car. Whoa. But I did have a radio. Just you know, we just had a radio at home, and I would actually listen to the radio, like just sit there in the living room and listen to the radio, like I was someone from like the 1940s or something. That is an interesting scene to imagine. <laughs> yeah, like there would be Saturday mornings where instead of watching Saturday morning cartoons, I would turn on the radio and just listen to uh, a music show for like an hour. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's kind of impressive, actually. I don't think I had the kid, attention man. span. I don't think I had the attention span for that as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I also just imagined you listening to the radio and then, you know, suddenly a broadcast comes on. And you just kind of freak out because it's the War of the Worlds. <laughs> yeah, the aliens are coming. <laughs> uh, you hear that? <laughs> if only we were alive during that era. Right, right. People were easier to please. Yeah, and probably a little bit more naive. Probably a lot more naive. <laughs> yeah 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 other than that I, I i definitely agree that the stronger elements of the uh movie are definitely the visual elements um and as for the music i, I think the best that i can give it is it didn't distract me too much from the movie and the the scores the scores of the of the you know various sequences throughout the movie were more than enough to make up for you know anything that i would find personally offensive or annoying yeah yeah and truth be told the visuals are strong enough where i would watch the movie again purely just for that i mean that's mm -hmm. not to say that there are no other good qualities of the movie but the visuals alone are are worth the price of admission. 
Nice. Nice. Because I do like I do like animation, man. I watch a lot of anime. Maybe I don't watch yeah. as many um, American or or Western cartoons as you do, especially because you know a lot more about uh, Western cartoon shows. Um, but for me, like I, I still I'm still interested in seeing animation. So compared to a lot of other stuff out there, like the, these Spider Verse movies, man, they just have a really unique look. So visually. I would just check them out just to look at them. It's an art form, man. So it's, I I think it's pretty reductive when people look at it and think cartoons are for kids. Um, I think, yeah, I, I absolutely believe in it as a viable medium and an art form and uh, just as important to storytelling as, you know, live acting or comics. And if you're able to produce something that is evocative enough and communicative uh, of themes, ideas, and uh, a story, then I've got no problem with it. You know, I don't, I'm not going to reduce it to just, hey, these are just pictures uh, and, you know, moving pictures are for kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. 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 Anything else on that? Or you want to talk about the acting and direction? You have any thoughts on the acting or the directing? I. Well, in short, I thought they were both great. I I think everyone that they got to be to do to who who got to do voices did a pretty stand-up job. There wasn't any point in it where I thought to myself this one particular character was awful or whatever. Um if anything, I ended up looking people up after the fact just to see who did what just out of sheer appreciation and admiration for who was in the movie. So you, you were looking them up so you could like find their addresses and go to their house and and like tell them in person how much you appreciated their work. <laughs> I was gonna break into their house. I was gonna roll around in their clothing so that I could get their scent on me, and then just really let them know that I really appreciate them. <laughs> <laughs> I want their essence on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. He's a true fan. <laughs> well, fan, the root uh, word uh, that fan came from was fanatic, right? So right. there we go. <laughs> I'm living up to it. Yeah. I will say that one of the characters, and this is someone that I, I of all the characters that were sort of breakout characters, I, I think he is less uh less noticed but he was someone that i appreciated quite a bit was the spot mm. and i i actually really liked him in in the movie and i think the whole time i was watching the movie i was thinking to myself this might be the best spot story <laughs> i've i've ever consumed you know i don't know if you had that thought but i uh, mean the competition isn't too fierce like 
I feel like <laughs> up to this point, like the spot's pretty much been a joke, and and the best yeah. thing that I can think of with the spot has been that it was that Mark Wade Daredevil story. I think I want to say Chris Samney drew it. I'm pretty sure, but it I was Chris. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You you know the one I'm talking about though, right? Maybe yeah, from like it was, ten years ago. Yeah, it's Daredevil versus the Spot, and even then he didn't necessarily treat him like a jokey character. He he treated the spot as a pretty serious threat, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I don't think he was a multiversal threat in that story because he was still just robbing people. Yeah. He was a threat to Daredevil. Exactly. Yeah. And in this movie, they make him a multiversal threat. And I do think there's something clever about that where he just ends up becoming the catalyst for the end of all multiverses. <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine that the spot could end existence across the multiverse, that he would be the cause for it? It's a pretty silly <laughs> concept. <laughs> I mean, it makes me laugh. It makes me chuckle. Yeah. And I assume that it's not meant to be taken super seriously. So, you know, I can stomach it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, the actor for him is Jason Schwartzman, and he's kind of a, I guess I could only describe him as an indie indie movie darling. I, I wouldn't even say he's a darling. Like, he, he had a couple of Wes Anderson movies early on in his career, and he's just kind of been in a bunch of different things over the years. Um, I don't think he's, he always kind of plays kind of like a hipster, that, like he's, forever just going to be a hipster in everything that he does I, i'd say the spot is the one character where he's not a hipster <laughs> <laughs> um i think about it and like i think the first thing that he was in was rushmore where it, he was a uh you know kind of a prototypical wes anderson character and then he's been in a bunch of wes anderson movies since then um but he's also been on a couple of tv shows that i liked i forget what the name of it was but um yeah he's he's just kind of i don't know how you describe it i guess just a lovable meek guy i'm looking yeah. at his filmography and the other big comic book movie that he was in was scott pilgrim versus the world yeah 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 exactly he was the yeah. main ex-boyfriend yeah he was the seventh evil ex yeah yeah i guess i didn't recognize him but then yeah i mean that movie was a long time ago so i the chances I of me recognizing I've... his voice are pretty slim yeah i in fact i didn't recognize his voice when i heard it in this movie so when i found out it was him that kind of blew my mind oh okay yeah the show that i was thinking of was bored to death and that's that's another comic book connection too because that one was created by Jonathan Ames, and he's done a couple of comics. So the one thing that I can think of is The Alcoholic. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I never read that so, one. I do own that. It's uh, it's something I got to go back to. It's it's an interesting um, semi-autobiographical comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was going to say... The other voice that I enjoyed was the voice of Spider Punk, and <laughs> yeah, he did I, a good job. 
yeah, he's likable, you know. And I forget the name of the actor that plays him. I'm Daniel Kaluuya. Him yeah, and he's, he's known Black for Panther. Get Out and Black Panther. Yeah, but that's another thing where I didn't really recognize him either because he was. I I don't know if he's actually American. I don't think he is. No, I feel he, like he's actually British. So he's he might yeah. have been using his real voice when he was playing Spider Punk, and we didn't recognize exactly. him because in those other exactly. movies. He was doing an American voice. Exactly, exactly. But I feel like in the other movies, he's usually... Well, okay, I was going to say he's usually kind of subdued. But he was kind of subdued in this too. But it was still kind of in a cool way. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I did like him quite a bit. And I thought that that was uh, good casting on their part. Were you ever a fan of Spider-Punk at all? I wasn't. Prior to this movie, he was just another gimmicky character that I thought was just destined for, you know, comics obscurity. But I guess this movie, I want to say that he, he's gotten gained some popularity because of it. I think there's a miniseries right now, or maybe it just ended recently. But they did uh, do a recent, they did give him a recent miniseries. Hmm. what do you think of the idea of spider punk pretty much the same as you just another variation on a popular character like he wasn't anything where like number one i don't think i ever remember reading a story with him in it or maybe he was just in the background or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but secondly i mean as, as entertaining as he was in the movie i don't think i'm gonna go to oh, the yeah, library yeah, yeah. and look up not at all <laughs> see if i can borrow spider punk not comic. at all not at all <laughs> i have no interest in that <laughs> i'm fine with him being just a product of this movie yeah and not not taking up any brain space outside of that you know yeah yeah that's fair exactly did you i don't know did you did you ever think anything of his design like when you first saw that this the the comic with Spider Punk before he was even in this this movie, did you have any thoughts about that design? I just thought it was fine. I mean, I didn't I didn't have any strong feelings either way. It's it was one of those things where I, I saw it and I was like, okay, it's Spider Man who's a punk. I guess that looks like yeah. Spider Man <laughs> as a punk. <laughs> yeah, there isn't much I'd have to, to it. Agree. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Like, I do remember the, well, I barely remember the miniseries that came out years ago. And even then, it was just, it wasn't anything where the optics of him were just so cool that in my mind, I was like, oh, oh man, I I love this character and I don't need to know anything else about him, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'd say in terms of all the spider characters that, had that kind of effect on me i think the only character would probably be someone like spider gwen yeah that's that might be the one instance where oh the design for this character is interesting enough where well i don't know if it made me like read the comic because i i haven't read it but it 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 made me more inclined to read the comic than something like silk or Aranya or 
you know, any number of the other spider people that they could have come up with. Yeah, and I I did read those comics, and what I have to say about that is I I think the Spider Gwen design that Robbie Rodriguez did is it's just so good. It's like one of the best character, like not just one of the best alternate versions of a character that we could ever have, but I I genuinely think it's one of the best superhero designs that we've had in the past like ten years. It's like I, to I me, agree with that. To me, it's it's up there with the Jimmy McKelvey captain marvel costume design Mm -hmm. but it's it's just such a great design like super distinctive it still looks like spider-man but the the hood like that makes such a big difference like such a simple and utilitarian element to the costume but it just adds so much to the character and then you know the color palette with the white the hot pink and the black it's yeah just a perfect costume yeah the color palette is awesome for it that it's not a color palette that you would associate with a lot of superheroes, but you're right with the the white and the pink and then the splash of like teal for the shoes. Mm-hmm. It it's it's all just like a perfect synthesis with one another to just really give you something that's just appealing to the eye. Yeah, and if you do read those original Spider Gwen comics, the art in those so good like robbie rodriguez did the line art and then rico renzi was the colorist so like one of the things that's so distinct about uh the movie is that i, I really think that they captured their art mm, style mm. in the movie absolutely. especially absolutely yeah especially when you in go the to her scenes. universe yeah exactly yeah. the scenes in her universe they look like pastel paintings or watercolors or something it's it's the same color palette that you would find in those comics yeah i think there were even a couple of scenes that were just directly lifted from the comics too i'm I'm not 100 percent sure because i haven't read them but they were images where i was like oh that that's kind of familiar yeah Um, and like the, the the basic outline of her origin plays out in a similar way like i think the stuff with her dad in the movie is a little different from the comic. It, it's been a while since I've read the comic, so I would need to like reread it to refresh my memory. But the stuff about how she failed to save her Peter Parker, um, you know, that that's from the comics. Like that version of Peter Parker never became Spider-Man. Instead, he ended up uh, turning into the lizard and getting killed in a battle with Gwen. And like that's haunted her ever since. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's that element. And then the the whole rock band thing was a nice shout out to the comics when she was, you know, that scene where she was in the band. Um, so, you, yeah, you could tell that the people who were working on the movie paid a, a lot of close attention to the comics. And I'd, mm-hmm. I'd even say, like, we were talking about the acting. And I, I do think that Haley Steinfeld did a really good job as Gwen. Like I, I had rewatched the first movie, uh, like mm-hmm. a few days before watching Across the Spider Verse, and like in the first movie, yeah, I think she did, she was fine in that one too. Like, definitely did a solid job. But then I think it's just that this movie gives her character a lot more. Like she it highlights more of her personal backstory, so it gives her more to work with. Exactly. Like there's a, yeah. a much stronger emotional arc for Spider Gwen in this movie compared to the mm-hmm. first movie so like you Heck, really right see more that, of a range right in the beginning man mm-hmm. 
yeah, the very opening sequence of the movie was it's just one of those captivating openings, man. Like I thought it was a great way to open the movie. Yeah, yeah. I I yeah, I totally agree. Like her right when you watch that first movie, she it's one of those things where maybe there really isn't too much explanation for why she's there early on. Well, well, no, the explanation is there in the first movie, but you don't really think too much about it. And they don't really give too much of a, a reason for you to think about her other than for her being there to help Miles. And right off the bat with this movie, um, right at the beginning, you you basically get all of her backstory and it just gives her more range to work with so that mm-hmm. she can actually act um yeah yeah so it feels I, like, I thought she was really good yeah it feels like in the first one what it the the impression it gave me was another thing where they just needed to get a famous actor to play a role in this animated movie so it didn't really matter who it was as long as it was someone with a big name so mm-hmm. you know she went in there read her lines and you know did her job and it was perfectly professional and passable but then like in across the spider verse this one it felt like okay yeah she she can actually be a good voice actor you know like there are some people where like i feel like this is a problem that we see when when disney does those studio ghibli dubs where they just get famous people to yeah yeah to dub an anime <laughs> it's yeah. Like even those I have trouble watching just because they're famous doesn't necessarily mean that they're particularly great voice actors or you know they don't necessarily like put in their best work. Yeah, sometimes it feels like I don't know what the process for that is. I I think I've I've got some old Ghibli films where they come with these extras and they show the recording process and I feel like how they did it was they would have the video footage playing on a screen and then they'd have the actor standing there doing the lines as they're watching the the scene and i don't know part of me feels like they part of me wishes that they would watch the original anime version with the subtitles and then maybe take a cue from that as to decide what direction they want to go in when they're giving their performance, right? Yeah. It just doesn't feel like it, it feels like it's the most generic sort of response that they can have where they're watching it and they go, Well, okay, in this scene he's angry. So I'm just gonna do angry, you know? <laughs> it's, right, right. It's really lackluster. It's really lackluster. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel like that's a big problem I see in a lot of anime dubs where it just sounds like the actors uh, are trying to create character voices to match what they think that the animated character would sound like, whereas mm-hmm. what you actually want is just for the actor to act. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's that's what we have in this movie where, um, again, taking the example of Haley Steinfeld, she was just acting, you know? Like, she wasn't trying to do, like, a cartoony voice or anything. She was yeah. just acting, and it fit the story if it's the movie you know yeah yeah i feel like you know not not to go too far off on the tangent but you know back to the idea of anime dub actors it 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 just feels like it's the most 
like bare minimum that they can do. So I, I've seen this happen a bunch of times in a bunch of different dubs, but whenever they see a cowboy, they 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 just give the stock generic Western <laughs> cowboy voice because, hey, he's a he's wearing a cowboy hat. He looks like a cowboy. So I got to talk with a y'all and a draw, right? <laughs> because that's that's just what would be expected, and it's it's not a good it's not a I don't know I. Have you ever watched a good Western movie? Do they talk like that in Western movies? <laughs> Do they go, howdy, y'all? <laughs> it makes me think of a Cowboy Bebop. You remember those scenes where they have the those two mm-hmm. characters doing the bounties? Yep, and yep. they're like, yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> we got ourselves a couple of varmints to wrestle up. <laughs> oh, man. That's why I don't watch dubs when I have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of the, the direction, I do think that the action for for the movie was pretty cool. Uh, it looked very... It was exciting to watch. It was kinetic. Um, the one scene that I think about a lot, or not a lot, but the, that jumps to mind is um, Miles Morales trying to escape you know the the citadel of spider spider men spider people whatever mm-hmm. and there's this scene where he's just jumping through traffic and he's he's uh he's trying to get away from Miguel O'Hara Spider-Man 2099 and then there's this train that's just going straight up into the atmosphere and they're just all chasing him that was a pretty crazy fight scene slash chase yeah, for something that was pretty chaotic, it was easy to follow on the screen. Yeah, yeah. Like, it definitely gave you the feeling of something chaotic happening, but it wasn't so chaotic that it was confusing. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. That's the kind of stuff I, I feel that owes a lot to the storyboard artists who were able to do all the layouts and, you know, make it coherent yeah right it's you know for for people who undervalue storyboarding and comic storytelling and sequential storytelling this is a primary example of why that stuff matters yeah totally Mm. i did read an article earlier this week i think it was on vulture but it's it's a story about the production behind uh across the Spider-Verse. And it, it was it was really about how uh, how much burnout it caused a lot of the people who were working on it. Like, there were, I, I want to say, like, maybe a thousand people who worked on it. And, and like, it sounds like a hundred people quit before it was completed. And I don't know if that's, you know, normal for a Hollywood production or not. But some of the people who ended up quitting the production, you know, shared their stories with uh, Vulture for this article. And uh, yeah, you can look it up for anyone who's interesting. It's it's called, it's, it's an article from June 23rd, 2023. And the title of the article is Spider-Verse Artists Say Working on the Sequel Was Death by a Thousand Paper Cuts. 
And mm. the writer is Chris Lee, who's a senior reporter who covers Hollywood. But yeah, reading that story is it's pretty elucidating. I mean, I, I feel like we already know quite a bit in general about poor working conditions and how a lot of people who do like the the grindy work of producing yeah. movies and special effects and animation, you know, it's a very time consuming job and there's a lot of crunch involved, a lot of extra overtime hours being forced onto these people in order to meet an arbitrary deadline set by some studio executive. Yeah, these giant studios, whether it be comics or movie studios, they don't generally have too much care for the people that they work with. Granted, I do understand that when it comes to these productions, sometimes those kinds of concerns fall to the wayside and it's not exclusively an American thing. I've definitely seen this sort of stuff play out in Japanese anime studios where they just, you know, it's a really big so, problem in the anime industry right now. Exactly. And I think the way that they package it or present it to people is, well, you know, you're doing this for the love of the craft. So, you know, you shouldn't be thinking about the money. You should be thinking about the, the track that they either take is, yeah, I should, you either should be thinking about it for the love of the the work, or you should be thinking about it in terms of, you know, your exposure and, you know, your chance to get to work on something like this, which, you know. It's a pretty scummy not the way most compelling, to. Exactly. It's not the most compelling argument and it's a pretty scummy way to like justify shabby treatment of your employees. Yeah. Cause yeah, they, they don't get paid uh, that much in terms of their regular hours. So the, the executives are like, well, when you make uh, what you make in overtime more than compensates for the, you know, your baseline pay. But yeah. that means they've got to work a lot of overtime, meaning like yeah, maybe exactly. 11 hours per day for, you know, weeks and weeks at a time. Like there's no work life balance. And it's just like, who wants to live like that? You know, like making, yeah, making a movie is not. It's not like a nine to five job where, you know, at the end of the day, you get to go home. Um, they, they have these production windows where, you know, from the time of conception to the final product, you are just cramming the whole time. And it's not like when you're not working, you have downtime, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're, as an illustrator, you're basically just moving from job to job because that's your livelihood. So this idea that, oh, once this movie is over, they can take a break. It's not really the case because that break, as much as you would want to take it and as nice as, as it would be to have, um, if it goes on for too long, you don't have work. You don't get work, right? And the longer that you don't do animation, the more irrelevant you become. So you're constantly having to you know, double dip, triple dip, or whatever just to keep your production going. It's... It's not a fun way to live, man. <laughs> yeah, it's not really sustainable for the individual person who has to do all that. Like, here's another thing that uh, comes across in that article, but there's certainly that element of the studio taking advantage of the, the 
the artists, the animators by, you know, telling them, oh, you should uh, keep on working on this because you'll have it for your, you know, for your personal portfolio, for your sizzle reel, you know, in the future when you want to apply for another job, you know, this will look good on your resume because you worked on a Spider-Man movie and that's a big name. Like, yeah. So, like they'll use that to kind of like try and motivate people. But then like some of the people uh, interviewed in the story talked about how some of the scenes um, required so many multiple passes. And, you know, it could just be like redrawing or reanimating one character in a scene with like six or seven characters. But how could you like really pass that off as your work when you only did like a small amount of it yeah. so it's like even then it's like hard to use it as an example for your portfolio you know like unless you like gray out every everything else and just like highlight the part that you specifically worked on so like that's kind of yeah. iffy there's stories of the <laughs> studio right. trying to take advantage of people's <laughs> will to work on it because you know it's spider-man and, and you love spider-man yeah. and you know like once they poured in their effort into it of course there's going to be like a desire to see something that they worked on turn out to be as good as possible it's kind of holding them hostage by like yeah. dangling their integrity as as in front of them you know exactly and, yeah and it's hard for me to imagine someone taking uh, like a, a couple of second clip from a movie as part of their, you know, like you said, their sizzle reel, taking it to their next work and being like, oh, yeah, you should make me an executive director on this. You see how the hair twirls here? That was all me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I, I do think that it's not, it's not a thing that's exclusive to the movie industry. Like, comics definitely does that, too. Part of me doubts that this was something that marvel picked up when they got acquired by disney because i have a feeling that they were always kind of like this anyways but yeah for them to go it should be more of an honor for you to get to work for us than it is for us to hire you you know yeah. so that that seemed to be we, we used to talk about this all the time um during the ed brubaker era where he was at marvel where you know they don't really value the contributions of the writers that are working on these books because yeah, at the end of the day, you, you get to take your name and now you make all these comics and you're a brand now. So you're welcome. Exactly. <laughs> it's pretty disingenuous. Yeah. It's arrogant and pretty thoughtless, inconsiderate and churlish and churlish. Exactly exactly let that be a lesson to all of you like if if you ever get the opportunity to uh you know hire someone to work on something don't don't polish that turd don't make it don't make it seem like you're doing them a favor have have the self-awareness and the dignity not to do that to other people <laughs> yeah exactly it's like the it's the kind of thing that makes your eyes roll in the same way that when you work at a regular job and your boss or the owner of the company is like, we're all family here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> am I coming over for Thanksgiving then? Or, or am I coming over for Christmas? Is, is that what's happening? <laughs> uh, 
man. Here's another thing that is frustrating for the people that worked on the movie, but a lot of the there were a lot of cuts and and redos and and things like that going on. But the way that it all happened was it sounds like it was super disorganized because one of the producers, this is one of those uh, Lord and Miller productions. I don't even Phil, know what they worked on. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. They've done a lot of things, actually. Um, they didn't I'd do have the to, Lego movie, did they? I think they were responsible for the Lego movie. Uh, oh. They, Yeah, the, the Lego movie from 2014, they directed that one. They did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Uh, they directed two live action movies within, or they they did two live action movies, Twenty One Jump Street and Twenty Two Jump Street. I never watched those. Okay. Weren't they gonna be the guys that were supposed to do Solo? They did start doing Solo. They got fired midway through the production. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, those are some of the things that they've had their hand in. They were also producers on. The Mitchells versus the Machines, the Lego Batman movie, um, the second Lego movie. Uh, they were producers on America, the motion picture. Oh, looks like they were also producers of Cocaine Bear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Unexpected. I did yeah. not imagine that, but okay. <laughs> but anyway, I was reading about their style of leadership in and level of involvement in the production. And it just sounds like Phil Lord in particular was one of those guys who kind of complicated things a lot for the people working on the movie because he was the kind of leader who would wait until people finished their work. Like, so let's say somebody finished a cut of animation. He would come in and look at it and maybe he might decide that it's not necessary or ask them to redo it or something, which is highly unusual because usually you want to catch those things at the storyboard level before, you know, somebody puts in the time and effort to actually do the work of drawing and animating something. It's not very considerate of the people that are making it. (laughs) Exactly. But it, the way that they make it sound, it just seems like he had a hard time kind of visualizing how things would look until he could actually see the final thing. And then he would decide to make the edits at that point. So that's why this movie was so heavily delayed. It was originally supposed to come out uh, like sometime last year. Um, What was the date? It was supposed to come out at least like, I think 16 or 18 months ago, but it it just kept getting delayed. And and that's why it came out in, in June of this year. But Speaking apparently he, he just did so much. He just had so many edits like throughout the the production that things slowed down to a standstill. And at one point, uh, according to multiple people, the animators actually, uh, the majority of animators actually like sat down and had nothing to do for like three to six months because he was holding up the pipeline that's pretty like, annoying. He slowed down the production. And then, of course, once things started to get back on track, it just meant that they had an avalanche of work. So they ended up being swamped under heavy crunch conditions for the remaining few months when, you know, it, it just 
it's just kind of dumb to go like multiple months with minimal work and then all of a sudden like you have four months with like a ton of work yeah it doesn't sound like it's a reasonable way to do production either where like you said where he comes in and he needs to see it in front of him before they can go through like it just doesn't sound very efficient at all and yeah it's the kind of thing that makes me go well if that's the case then you should pay us for like per thing that we do right as opposed to uh, a set fee or whatever (laughs) i mean i don't know what their payment structure is like but you know if they're gonna look at it and then decide last minute oh we're not gonna do this or i want you to redo it at that point you might as well just be paying them for every time that they need to redo it because that's the case then it'll hopefully it'll make you more considerate of what you choose to keep and what you choose to get rid of, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think that's how they do it. Yeah. I doubt it too. I'm just wishing here. (laughs) (laughs) I just looked it up and it looks like the original release date for across the universe, across the spider verse was supposed to be April of 2022. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So yeah, I guess it was like a 14, 14 month delay. That is huge. And they say that the uh, sequel, they say that the third movie is supposed to come out on March 29th of 2024. And that sounds pretty unrealistic to me. Yeah. I was going to say that there's news that that's already been pushed back from what I hear. Yeah. But I think the one way that it could make sense is if they were working on both of these movies simultaneously. See, that's what I thought. But then in that, in that story, the animators say yeah. that's not that's not the case. Oh, that sucks. They were not working on both movies simultaneously. <laughs> that really sucks for them then. Yeah. I I do not envy them. <laughs> cuz cuz the thing about this movie and you know spoilers is they didn't tell anybody that this movie was actually part 1 of uh a multi it, it was no, they I didn't thought they did i think they did did they because i don't, think they, sort of came... I don't think they advertised it as such but i think when yeah, they yeah, yeah. originally announced it they mentioned that there would be two sequels that would be um connected, connected. yeah oh, okay but, okay because i think it was originally going to be like across the spider-verse part one and then across the okay. spider-verse part two but you know how they like to change things so that people don't think that they're watching half a story yeah well i was i mean i didn't hear that so maybe that was something i missed but it just felt like from discourse it it, people were kind of surprised when they got to the end like i don't know what your experience was but when i was in the theaters when it got to the end and the to be continued came up people were kind of surprised yeah 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 can't blame them for that because like if you don't pay attention to the announcements like which yeah, most yeah, people yeah. don't then how would you know that going into the movie yeah i did talk to a friend about it and <laughs> funnily enough he did say that that was something he didn't like because he felt like he was getting ripped off <laughs> <laughs> yeah let, let's talk a little bit about the story then since we were talking about the ending sure. here but did did you think that this was half a story or did you think that it was a satisfying movie in and of itself that just happens to lead to another movie, much like, let's say, something like Infinity War and Endgame. 
Because I remember oh. when you were talking about Endgame and Infinity War, I think you did mention that Infinity War works really well for you because it's like its own thing. If you like watch that by itself, it's still a really satisfying experience. It absolutely is. Um, I don't think... I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is me cherry-picking, but it does feel like Across the Spider-Verse does have more... It, it does feel like there's more plot dangling there at the end of that than at the end of uh, Infinity War. But I, I guess that doesn't bother me too much, right? Because I think I apply the same logic to it that I do with comics uh, that, that, that you've espoused quite a few times, which is, um, you know, I, I don't care if a comic is delayed, but if you rush it, and it's a bad comic, it'll be a bad comic forever. Mm -hmm. You know? So I, I think that same logic applies here, which is, well, if they have a good story and for the sake of, um, you know, just making something more streamlined, they break it up into two movies, then I'd rather that be the case than you know, rushing it just to give us something that feels like it has closure so that they can feel make it feel like that the third movie, you know, is its own thing or whatever, right? So I mm -hmm. I don't think it bothers me or upsets me quite as much because, well, I mean, I didn't know that they weren't moving, working on these movies at the same time, but I, I still think, or I assume that they have a vision for where they want this third movie to go, right? So yeah, I think they do have that. I think it's just that yeah. the animation itself wasn't done at the same time. Right, right, right. So yeah, I, 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 I've got no problem with that. Um, I don't know. Is that something that bothers you? It didn't bother me, but I, I do think it makes the movie weaker because it, it doesn't really feel like it has a real ending. Hmm. Like if, yeah, if this, it just makes it feel like you're watching a really long episode of a show or something you know i mean obviously this is yeah. like already a really long movie because it's it's like what is it like two almost two and a half hours right it's pretty long yeah yeah it was, it was a pretty long movie and i i think that the way that the ending is it's kind of to be expected because like once once the movie got to a certain point and i checked my watch i was like yeah, it doesn't really make sense that they could like <laughs> right. end it in the next right. 15 minutes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so did I wasn't you, like, did you actually shocked. do that during the movie? Were, were you, did you look at your clock and you go like have that moment of realization where, wait a minute, this isn't my world? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think one of the reasons why the movie feels less satisfying is because some of the arcs don't feel like they've resolved and they kind of leave you kind of leaves you hanging a bit. Because let's take uh, Infinity War an ex as an example, right? And I think one of the more interesting elements of Infinity War is if you look at it as a movie or a story about Thanos. 
so he gets a full arc there and like you could even say he's like the primary character maybe he's not the hero but he's arguably the protagonist yeah of infinity war and he gets a full arc you know he he gets everything he wants and he he triumphs at the end of the movie so in that sense you get this really satisfying character arc that carries you through the entire thing granted all of the you know the heroes that survive are feeling pretty down about it but it just adds to the to the mood and the somberness of it with across the spider verse it kind of feels like you don't get that full arc yeah yeah it feels like, like miles can... morales is still he hasn't completely um resolved the issue the emotional things that he was carrying throughout the movie like specifically yeah. him trying to figure out how to talk to his parents about who he is and what he does and just resolve that you know relationship status with them mm, and mm. it just kind of leaves you hanging and like that's the kind of cliffhanger where it's it's hard to feel satisfied until you see the next movie and see how they resolve his story. Uh, right, I mean, I guess right. you could you could say if if this movie is about Spider Gwen, then I guess you could say in a way that it gives her some resolution because she patches things up with her dad by the end of the movie, but at the same time there's clearly something that she's not done doing because she's kind of the one responsible for Miles being in the predicament he's in now. And you don't get a chance to see her save him. You just see her gather up some forces so that she can save him in the next movie. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'd even say that that applies to just the way that it ends with Miles too, where he's literally just tied up and you know, trapped in this alternate universe, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, even with Infinity War, you could tell yourself, well, Thanos uh, succeeded at what he wanted to do, and now we have to live in a world where half the population is just dead. <laughs> and <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Why do you sound so gleeful about that prospect? <laughs> uh Maybe maybe that's a secret fantasy of mine. <laughs> maybe for me that was where the movie truly ended and I just never left the theater. That's where the movie that's where <laughs> that's where my fantasy just continues. To this day uh, you still have not seen Endgame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't left the theater. I'm still in the theater right now as we speak just <laughs> basking in the idea that half of humanity is gone. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, but yeah, there at at the end of uh, Spider Verse, Miles is literally just tied up, and he comes face to face with evil Miles. Yeah, you know. Uh huh. Do you think uh, because he's evil Miles, his name would be Wiles? <laughs> that would be pretty funny. You just turn the M upside down, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Wiles Morales. Wiles Morales. <laughs> oh man. 
Um, you mentioned earlier that one of the things that irks you about this movie is uh, the multiverse angle. Yeah. And uh, if I had to admit, I, do, I, I think I agree to a point um, w- with that. But, well, okay. This, this is what I was going to say. That There's a point in the movie where for the first chunk of it, I'm actually on board, right? When he's fighting the spot and they're chasing the spot through the multiverse, it's like, okay, this is this is enjoyable for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, when they get to the sanctum of spiders, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to call it that. Uh, you <laughs> is know, that what they called it in the movie? Because that's a pretty don't. funny name. They don't, but if if you know if Marvel wants to call me, hey, I'm I'm here. So Spider Sanctum, <laughs> the Spider Sanctum, exactly. But once they get there, there's some there's there's a moment in that period where I do lose interest a little bit, and I think this is the part where it actually where the fan boys and fan people get get on board with it. Because it's at this point where you see all the different spider people, and it's it's all about this navel gazing where you're pointing out all the Easter eggs, and they're like, "That's Donald Glover, and he's dressed as uh, the Prowler," yep. and and you know, and uh, oh, there's Spectacular Spider-Man from the cartoon Spectacular Spider-Man, stuff and like that, right? There's the Spider-Man from the video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say that it was kind of funny seeing Ben Riley Spider-Man. <laughs> that made me laugh. That made me laugh. But overall, I I wasn't really too enamored with the idea of the Spider Sanctum, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. Thoughts? I agree. Like number 1, I don't actually believe in my heart of hearts that a literal multitude of Spider-Man would willingly choose to become fascist multiversal cops. It's <laughs> right. like the the premise of that I find extremely questionable and I just can't get on board with it, you know? I don't believe it. I don't believe that Spider-Man would do that. I don't believe that is his character. And sure, you could say that, you know, there's got to be like some misguided evil Spider-Man out there who would who could be like that. And that's fair. But the Spider-Men that were depicted in the Spider Sanctum, they were all just regular hero Spider-Men who thought that, you know, they'd have to all allow somebody important to them to die because it's just how things are. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's another element that doesn't hold up for me in the story because it's got Flashpoint Syndrome. You know, like we always talk about Flashpoint being this awful, stupid comic. And, you know, we dedicated an entire episode of our podcast to dismantling it. But the idea in Flashpoint was that Barry Allen went back in time to save his mom. And then it rewrote the entire universe because I guess him saving his mom was that significant of an event that it changed everything. And then it led into this post-apocalyptic future or something. But in across the spider verse it's a similar idea just 
the concept of how saving Uncle Ben or Captain Stacy or whoever your captain figure is, like this allows the universe to exist. <laughs> yeah, it would it would lead to the entire multiverse unraveling, like when they went to the Spider-Man India universe and saved that Spider-Man's uh, captain figure. Like that was that was going to lead to the entire multiverse unraveling. The the web of the multiverse would unravel and completely fall apart, threatening reality as we know it. I just think that's a stupid idea, man. It makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Plus yeah. the idea of literally trying to preserve canon events, like that phrase, it just reeks of the sort of fanboy continuity pornography I absolutely <laughs> despise. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of that now, and th- I do feel like your hackles going up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get some sort of entertainment out of it. <laughs> like, I think the, the, the thing about it that feels weird to me is okay so to to a degree i'm willing to follow you follow them down this rabbit hole where okay there's a single fascistic spider-man who's recruiting all these other spider-men to be you know his gestapo his spider stoppo right <laughs> and <laughs> puts a new spin on the ss yeah <laughs> right so okay uh I'll, I'll follow along just to see where this goes but the thing that gets me is when he comes into contact with the old peter parker that he meets the the, the lovable peter parker that you know we were kind of rooting for in the last movie and it turns out mm-hmm. he's in on this too i was like yeah wait exactly <laughs> there's it's a hard thing to reconcile that this version of spider-man the the, the version of him that's not only was he lovable in the last episode, we were rooting for him to end up with Mary Jane. He gets with Mary Jane. He has this kid now. He takes this kid everywhere with him. There's, for all intents and purposes, we should love this version of Peter Parker, Spider-Man, right? But then to reveal, oh yeah, he had to let his uh, Captain character die, you know, because it's a canon event. And because he understands that this is what he needs to do to in- maintain the integrity of the spider verses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, it, I just find it hard to believe that that version of Peter Parker would be so okay with that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it wouldn't just be that Peter Parker, but also Gwen herself. And we even saw Penny Parker or whatever her her name is from the first movie. Like it's hard to believe that all of these wholesome Spider-Men, Spider-People decided to throw their lot in with Spider-Man 2099. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, well, okay. Uh, I'm gonna address what you just said real quick though. I, I don't know. Were the other Spider-Men like the Spider-Ham and the uh, Spider-Noir and uh, Penny, like, were they actually part of the Spider Stoppo? Penny was, because she's in it. She was, We definitely okay, saw okay. her 
but Spider-Ham and Spider-Man Noir did not show up until the last scene of the movie. Okay. Because, man, now you've, you've got me, man, you're making my eyes kind of go googly. Because now I'm thinking, because there's also got to be Spider-Man that aren't part of his his organization that just happen mm-hmm. to exist outside of outside of their little group, right? But, you know, these quote-unquote canon events are still going to happen, aren't they? Regardless of whether they're part of the group or not. Mm-hmm. Because they made a big deal of how, right at the beginning, not every Spider-Person is invited to be part of their group. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And yeah, if the multiverse but, is infinite, then theoretically there should be an infinite number of other Spider-Men who are not part of the group. So maybe this group of Spider-People are just all the jerk Spider-Mans coming together? <laughs> See, but that's the thing. Like if, if, yeah, I have like to go if, back, if that was if I the case, to... <laughs> then okay, I could believe that. But then right. that's not the case because they actually have good Spider-Men people, good Spider-People right, right, right. on the team. That's true. That's true. Good point. Good point. But how good are they if they're willing to allow their captain people to die? <laughs> oh, that's the, that's the other thing I was going to say was in terms of canon events, I don't even really get why the death of a Captain Stacy in each of these universes would be the canon event. Because in my mind, the canon event is Uncle Ben. Exactly. Right? That Exactly. That didn't really make sense to me when when I was watching it. I was like... Like, if you're going to do a universe where every universe has to have a Spider-Man, usually the the, the one thing that every Spider-Man story has is there's got to be an Uncle Ben that dies. Like, I I mean, don't don't get me wrong. The death of Captain Stacy is, is a big part of it. But Tobey Maguire didn't even have a, a, a George Stacy in his universe, at, at least as far as I could remember. Yeah. I think Gwen shows up in that third movie, but... That's true. Captain Stacy never shows up. Yeah. Actually, what are you guys doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> now that now that you've got me thinking about it, how many of those Spider-Men in the Spider Sanctum do you think lost their version of Gwen Stacy? Like yeah. if, like do you think that every time they saw Spider-Gwen, they felt pain? <laughs> yeah. That must have been yeah. uncomfortable. Man, this is a thing where the more we tug on these threads, the <laughs> the weirder it gets, the weirder the logic of the movie gets. <laughs> it's like, dang, every time I see my new teammate, Gwen, it just reminds me of the biggest loss of my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can never but be with her. <laughs> all these other spider people would be like just trying to holler at her, right? Wouldn't they? Because <laughs> if they all lost to Gwen Stacy, then she's she's kind of a hot commodity, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dang. That's a... This is a weird universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, maybe it's us just overthinking it, but it certainly helps to not think about those things in order for me to enjoy this movie. <laughs> cause, cause those threads definitely just make it weirder and, and more complicated. Yeah. 
and here's another thing going back to the whole fixation on the captain part of the canon event but why why is there such a fixation on captains in the first place like what if miles's father never got that promotion would he still be in danger like right. is is being a captain really the thing that you know pushes everything over the edge like i don't and it's like you said like not every like spider-man would still exist even if their captain stacy died like that's yeah part of the if you're talking about canon that was literally the canon i mean peter parker was spider-man for years before captain stacy died like why wasn't why wasn't uncle ben the focal point you know yeah yeah I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's, and okay, that's... And, and let's say that they did save the Captain Stacy, like the Spider-Man India uh, Captain. Like, why would saving him cause the entire multiverse to unravel? I mean, what they were saying was because it's a canon event and it's an event that. Uh, never mind. I was I was gonna try to explain it the way they explained it, but. After thinking about it, I was like, okay, that doesn't really make any sense. Other than that they just wanted to establish some sort of rule that would make the stakes, you know, viable. <laughs> but, yeah, there's no... <sighs> yeah. Okay, let me ask think... you this then. Oh, okay, sure, you shoot. You want to you go ahead and finish your thought? Well, I was just going to say I wasn't like thinking about this as I was watching the movie. I was just I was just going with the flow of what they were telling me because you know, suspension of disbelief, right? So I was like, okay, well, okay, if if these are the rules that you need to establish for yourself in order for this to make sense, then I'm not going to overthink it. And I'll just have to believe that you know, if these are canon events that are the linchpins for their universe, then um you know a captain stacy not dying or a captain character not dying is going to be the thing that you know sets off some sort of domino effect where the universe begins to unravel okay but now that i'm talking to you about it and like actually thinking about it it is there's no real way to explain it other than you know for them to just go just because exactly Exactly. Yeah. Here's another question or another point. I'm not sure if I have a question yet. <laughs> but Miguel says that Miles as Spider-Man shouldn't exist. Like he's pretty straightforward and blunt about that. And while this does seem to indicate that uh well, first of all, I would say him saying that Spider-Man shouldn't exist. Like, there's a way to read that comment as a commentary about how when Miles Morales, the character, was created in the real world, there was a vocal contingent of people who were upset at Marvel for killing Peter Parker and replacing him with a black Spider-Man. But uh, right. you know, that's, that's something we can get into later on. Strictly speaking, within the bounds of the movie itself, the conversation is framed as Spider-Man or Miles 
being this multiversal anomaly who shouldn't exist because the only reason he became Spider-Man is because the radioactive spider from Earth-42 was brought over to Miles' universe, and that's what gave him his powers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because in the first movie, we saw that uh, the Kingpin's people, including the Spot, before he became the Spot when he was just a regular scientist, like he were, they were working on this that multiversal device thing that would you know draw things into their universe. So that's how the spider from Earth-42 bit Miles. But if Miles is truly an anomaly, how come the multiverse didn't begin unraveling once he became Spider-Man? Because the spider that left Earth-42 to bite him, doesn't that mean that Earth-42 doesn't have a Spider-Man? Because no, well, there's no... Well, that's what they said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if there's no Spider-Man, like, isn't that a bigger canon event than Captain Stacy surviving? Like, what makes Captain Stacy more important than Spider-Man existing? Well, they didn't explicitly say it, but for all we know, maybe that universe without a Spider-Man did unravel and is gone. But... I thought the way that they were explaining it was that if one universe unravels, it's going to make the entire web of the multiverse unravel. That's why they can't let one non-canon, they can't they can't let one universe uh break canon. Mm-hmm. Right? So that doesn't that mean right. that it's already been all this time that Earth 42 had a non-canon event? but the universe is still intact. The multiverse is still intact. Yeah. You got me there. I think, yeah, you, you need to write a letter to the to the <laughs> movie people. <laughs> you got me. I don't have an answer for that, man. Oh, and, man. And again, going down that thread, even some more, if Miles is an anomaly, why does Miguel even care if Miles tries to save his own father? Because he's already an anomaly anyway. Yeah. These are all good points. And it, it really does feel like they wrote themselves into a corner here. But yeah. <laughs> but but it's, it, it truly takes the power of the suspension of our disbelief and, you know, us disregarding a whole bunch of information in order for this to make sense. Yeah, how can Jefferson's death be considered a canon event if Miles himself is an anomaly? Doesn't make sense. The plot just makes Spider-Man 2099 seem like an idiot who doesn't think through things logically. Yeah. Yeah, and if I had to be perfectly honest, talking to you now, you've you've made me rethink a lot of these too because I wasn't really thinking about these either until you brought it up. So here we are. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to have to drive out into the middle of the woods and just really think on this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going 
going to drive out into the middle of the woods. I'm going to take some peyote and really try to find my answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way to understand the movie, man, when you're on drugs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, uh, man. Uh, I, I, I do feel like thematically there were some things that they were talking about in there, but I, I can't really... I'd have to think about it some more in order to like really step back and make a cohesive thesis for what they're trying to say. But it it does feel like they are or or multiple times throughout the movie they've they went out and there's terms and ideas that they that we see over and over again that kind of point to a bigger idea which is well, one, they use things like terms like canon events and uh, the terminology that revolves around storytelling and mythology. Like storytelling and mythology seems to be a big part of this, one of the underlying themes of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this, a scene in the movie where Miles is resisting all the other spider people and he's trying to get away. And he says to Miguel O'Hara, he, he really tells him... Um, everybody's trying to tell me how my story is supposed to end. And I I forget what the rest of the line is, but I I mean, I think it's something to the effect of like, but I get to choose what my own story is. I get to tell what my own story is. Right. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there is an underlying theme of storytelling and mythology that, that is a linchpin to the, ideas that this movie is trying to communicate but i just can't put my finger on what that cohesive statement is supposed to be right yeah and i think the reason why it's tough for you to say that is because the movie ends on a cliffhanger and we don't get that resolution when miles says that he gets to be the one who writes his own story well by the end of the movie he still hasn't done that because he's you know tied up in chains or whatever, you know, he's about to face his evil alternate self. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't get those answers or we don't get that whole theme resolved. It's like listening to a song that, that just builds up and builds up, but then, you know, you don't actually play it to the end. You don't get to hear how the song actually ends. You don't get the satisfying resolution to it. You just hear the build up, and then like somebody turns off the radio before you can listen to the end of it it's just all hook <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're just constantly waiting for the drop but we never get it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah like i thought that was weird that they spent so much of their time talking about oh this is what canon this is what a canon event is all these stories have to end a certain way. And then, you know, for, to, to listen to you talk about how um, Miles as a character shouldn't exist at all uh, if, if it were up to fans because of the outcry at the idea of uh, Black Spider-Man, right? But then there's this entire meta commentary how you could look at this this movie as being a... It's a repudiation of all the haters, man. 
yeah, it's a thumb in the eye of all those people who spent their time hating on on the idea of this even existing, right? Mm-hmm. And again, you know, if you go back to that one line where Miles is just like, everybody's trying to tell me how my story is supposed to end, but, you know, I get to write my own story. Like, that just falls in line with that that idea of him just almost speaking to the audience and saying, you know, stories can be whatever we want them to. Nobody tells us how stories have to be and how they have to not be, right? Yeah. Because that's the power of storytelling, essentially. Yeah. I think now that I'm kind of working it out, I, I, I do think that that's kind of the, the point of this movie is that nobody gets to own uh, stories. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like that's something that has been kind of underrated in the in the discourse. I mean, granted, I haven't paid super close attention to what everybody is saying about the movie, but uh-huh. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I do think that is a really clear undercurrent in the movie. Maybe it's something that people who... Maybe it's something that only people who kind of pay attention to the context of or the history of Miles would get. Yeah. But it does feel like the people who created the movie were aware of that context and were aware that there were a lot of people who hated the idea of Miles, you know, people who, you know, like, what was it like 2011 or something when Miles Morales was created and there was just this public outcry because People just, were mad that Peter Parker was going to die and that they were going to replace him with Miles Morales because, you know, I hate putting it this way, but there, there's really no other way to put it, right? Which is, like, people were mad because they thought it was another example of, like, either wokeness or, um, you know, uh, what's it called? Political correctness. I don't even know Political if wokeness correctness. was a term back then, but, yeah, definitely, like, people on Fox News were, you know, up in arms about it and and just like that kind of crowd were Yeah, it was the talking- type of thing where the worst kind of people came out of the woodwork to write letters and, you know, make campaigns, uh protest in whatever stupid way they thought was a viable way to protest. And this entire movie exists and the fact that this movie is successful and the fact that Miles Morales is now like a part of just the zeitgeist of popular culture to the point where everybody knows him right mm-hmm. like that that is a huge repudiation of those echo chambers that exist that spent all that time and energy just trying to point out that oh you know if you go woke you go broke because <laughs> you know whenever you make a uh, diverse character to replace the more popular uh, you know white character or whatever like you're inevitably just shunning all of your fans and there's no possible way to make a version of that that is economically viable because you're just gonna turn off all of the people who love you know peter parker because that was the one true spider-man that they grew up with or whatever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you say it like he's a real person or something (laughs) <laughs> right right i'm sure they believe that i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure in their mind that he's as real as they come 
<laughs> yeah. And obviously a lot of those people who were complaining at the time weren't actually comic book readers or fans of comics. They were just people who like to people looking for something to complain about. <laughs> they were they were culture warriors, man. Yeah, yeah. Like I you mentioned something earlier and I think it's a good point, which is this is the sort of discourse and context that not everyone is familiar with, uh, especially the people that go to the movies. Um, like, I, you know, it's it's kind of inside baseball where if you're if you keep your ear close enough to the ground and you follow uh, the communities and the news that circulate around comics, this was this was a, a, a noticeable thing that happened, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I could. I, I feel like I could go up to almost anyone and talk about something like comic skate or something. And most people wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Right. But, you know, between me and you and, uh, you know, people that actually do follow comics closely, um, that's, you know, we, we know what these things are. We know uh, the, the, the chain reaction that happens when these things, these uh, things show up and they still they're still out there to this day um making it a point to slam any comic or any work that they consider offensive to their tastes you know Um, they'll usually couch it in terms like oh this they're just trying to pander to us or they're trying to pander to a certain demographic and that's why Captain America is a black man or Thor is a woman or Spider-Man's black or, you know, whatever the case may be. (laughs) It's super reductive. Don't get me wrong. I don't like being pandered to either, but like, I don't think every example of that is pandering. At least read the comics before you complain about them. Exactly. Right. There's certainly a version of that that's ham fisted and annoying, but if, if you're just going to look at the cover or something, or if you're just going to look at a headline and that's enough for you to like lose your crap, then this isn't really about the the character. You don't really know what you're talking about. You're just, you're just mad for the basic easiest reason that you could be mad. Mm-hmm. You know, just exactly. Like I, I still remember the news when, when it was, announced that miles was coming out and uh that they killed peter parker like people actually thought that peter parker was dead like the original peter parker spider-man from the 1960s was dead and yeah like they had no idea what the ultimate universe was yeah like that, that alone was enough to make me realize yeah these people are stupid yeah it's it's disingenuous at at best it's ignorant at no it's ignorant at best. It's disingenuous at worst, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't know, then fine, you're just dumb. But there are people that were actively using this as evidence to show that there's a purge in Hollywood and they're coming for you. <laughs> they're coming for you. <laughs> you know, they were, they were actively making, you know, just listicles and, 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 piles of uh examples that they could just point to where they could just say see look at this thor's a woman uh iron man's a woman a black woman at that and uh you know captain america is now black and they 
just generating all these lists just so they could be, you know, spiteful pricks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the other thing, the other big thing that I saw in the movie in terms of thematic ideas was the whole notion of fatalism and destiny. Mm-hmm. And it it's something that you mentioned a bit when you were just when we were just talking about uh that quote that Miles has about, you know, being the one to write his own story. And I I do think that's something that is tied in with fatalism because so many of these other Spider-Man characters in the movie, they've seemed to just accepted how things are going to be. Like they, I guess it's like they've given up trying to save people or change the future because it's just a fact that somebody close to them is going to die. Yeah. Which if you think about it, that really doesn't that really goes against the grain of what Spider-Man is all about. Yeah. Yeah. You you make a good you make an excellent point actually cuz what Spider-Man's about is even when the chips are down he keeps fighting. Exactly. Right? That's that should be the greatest lesson that he learns from his uncle Ben which is you know giving up was what led to uncle Ben's death. And exactly. If anything, he needs to get up and keep fighting and keep being Spider-Man. So this idea that there's an entire organization of Spider-People that have decided <laughs> it's okay for someone to die. That, yeah. yeah, it's a pretty weird thought. <laughs> yeah, it, it really goes against the grain of what I believe Spider-Man is about. <laughs> I, I hadn't considered that until you mentioned it just now, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man you know it, it's it's an entertaining movie and all but i just yeah. think that if you think about the movie too much a lot of the yeah. stuff just kind of falls apart yeah like, no I, I, like, I definitely agree with that <laughs> yeah like a lot of the character bits and the lines and dialogue those are those are great yeah and the stuff that they did with Gwen and her father and, and her character arc in the movie, I think it's great. It's just that all the plot stuff and yeah. what it has to say about who Spider-Man is, that that's where it loses me, man. That's what I'm yeah. not with. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it after I watched the movie, but sitting here with you now, breaking it down, like, it's just glaring now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I'm not a, I'm not apologizing if I ruined the movie for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're, you're if anything, you've uh, you've enlightened me to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't. I I still had a good time. I don't hate it. Like, I don't think. Oh yeah, I still enjoyed it. I I liked it a yeah. lot. I still think it's even with all these flaws or you know the issues that we've poked in it, the holes we've poked in it. I definitely yeah. think it's way better than No Way Home. Yeah. And I'm going to disclose something to you right now, but we talked about multiverses uh, in this episode, and I do think that multiverses have kind of been the the hit 
sort of uh, concept that's been going around lately. Mm -hmm. uh, Marvel has been doing a bunch of their mar uh, multiverse stuff, and DC has really leaned into that as well. Um, yeah, I feel like it's it's been a pretty popular concept in recent years. Rick and Morty does a multiverse all the time. Like it's it's gotten to the point where it's it's begin it's begun to affect my appreciation of certain stories. Uh, I'm right now reading uh, Black Science by Rick Remender, and yeah. um, I forget who the artist is, but uh, uh, Matteo Scalera, I think. Yeah, Matteo Scalera, right, right, right. And the thing about that is it's another multiverse story, but it, like there's definitely reoccurring ideas that feel like they have to happen with all multiverse stories. And, um, you know, regardless of whether it's good or bad at this point, it, it, it is something that's wearing me down um, and making it hard for me to enjoy certain shows or stories or comics, right? Yeah. Um, the one thing I was going to disclose to you was a friend invited me to go watch The Flash, and I actually did watch it. Oh! Yeah. Oh! Yeah. Oh, indeed! You want to get nuts? Uh, Let's get nuts! And I was going to say, man, uh, that's... Spider-Man is definitely better than that, but the Flash is another movie that totally just gorges is gorgeous itself on the excess of multiverse multiversal fandomness. Like that's really all that movie is, and it's. Uh, I mean, I, I I'm not gonna spoil it for anyone. I think that movie does a pretty damn fine job of spoiling itself. But <laughs> uh, you mean like it, like craps itself. Like uh yeah, like uh like uh like old milk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. And uh and it didn't help that so much of that movie revolved around all of the tropes that just are automatically connected with these multiverse stories. I just yeah, I think after Black Science, I'm gonna have to take a good long break from multiverses as a whole. <laughs> I just need to. I'm, it, it's it's seriously been affecting my ability to read Black Science because I'm just, and I actually enjoy Black Science, but I, I'm finding that I'm reading through it a whole lot slower than I would otherwise. Uh, it doesn't help that it's like 40 something issues, but uh, yeah. In yeah. the flash movie is, is the plot similar where they have to like save somebody in order to prevent the multiverse from unraveling. Um, I guess you could say that it's, you don't care, right? I personally don't care. I don't know if the people okay. listening will care. Uh, I'll I'll save you guys a couple of bucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's it's very much like Flashpoint in that it's the opposite, right? Because in Flashpoint, it's about him saving, saving someone, his mom. saving his mom. Well, okay, there goes that. Okay, <laughs> it's about him saving his mom and how saving his mom 
unleashes this chain event, right? Yeah. Um, I'd say Flashpoint, uh, the Flash movie is basically that, where by saving his mom, he sets off a chain reaction that alters the the future or his present, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess I might as well just go into full spoilers. But <laughs> so if you if you uh, thought you were safe from spoilers at this point, <laughs> here we go. Spoilers for the Flash. But um, I'll, I'll try not to be as not to be too spoilery. But I think the the thing about the Flash is um, once he gets to a point in the movie towards the end, it's it's the realization that he has this power to go back. And, and change these things, that's the thing that's corrupting to him, right? Mm-hmm. And there's ultimately a version of him that can't let go of his past. So I guess if you wanted to look at the theme of that movie, it's the idea that um, it's the idea of letting go of, of, of things that have happened to you in the past, right? So uh, there's a version of him that exists that is incapable of letting go of certain things. And that is to, a, that is a detriment to himself as well as to the multiverse. Whereas the version of him that ultimately ends up being the okay version of him, the one that, you know, learns a lesson and ends up leading a happier life is the version of him that learns to accept his trauma and, internalizes those lessons as a motivating factor for him as opposed to the other one who is just going to keep going back trying to fix things okay yeah i i'd say that that's the primary difference but they're really two sides of the same coin you know yeah that's what it sounds like yeah yeah and it's like i said i'm i'm kind of multiversaled out at this point you're multi-tapped out i'm i'm multi-tapped out exactly <laughs> oh man I, I i don't know and, and there's still a bunch of these kang movies that are coming out and, um i don't know <laughs> i don't know how i'm gonna get through it i think there's a season two of loki on the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah you might just need know. to stop reading entirely for a bit. Stop watch. Stop <laughs> consuming fiction and just live your life in your daily, <laughs> everyday routine, without any entertainment whatsoever. And that might be the thing that'll uh, prepare you to consume more multiverse content. Uh, I mean, and the thing is, I haven't even read like some of the better multiverse stories. Like I, I still haven't read uh, Fantastic Four by Jonathan Hickman. So, oh man, we should read that for the podcast. I I have my 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 copies, but yeah, like I said, I'm gonna need a while. <laughs> <laughs> I am gonna need a while. I mean, there's his Fantastic Four, which co- covers multiverse, but there's also his Avengers run, which I haven't read either, or not in its entirety, and that definitely covers multiverse stuff. So, all right. Oh my. Everybody stay tuned for 2027 when Between the Gutters goes on a Jonathan Hickman Marvel run. 
<laughs> well, that makes up for this year because we we have been covering a lot of DC comics this year. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts about the movie that you want to share? Uh, I guess my final thought is I liked it a lot more going into it before I talked to you, but now that <laughs> sorry. <laughs> You make it sound like I ruined it for you. You didn't ruin it for me, but you just made me think about it. And now that I am thinking about it, it's like, oh yeah, a bunch of that stuff doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe it's fair to say that, no, no, on a plot level, it doesn't make sense. And on a thematic level, some of it doesn't make sense. But uh, I mean, I still enjoyed it. I still think it's a good movie to look at. And of the multiversal stuff that I have been consuming, it's 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 definitely on the better end. It, it, yeah. Like you said, it's better than Doctor Strange. It's better than uh, No Way Home, mm-hmm. and it's definitely better than The Flash. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there we go. Nice man. What about you? Final thoughts? I think my final thoughts are. Pretty similar to what you just said too. I mean, it's got a, it's a movie that has problems, and I think there are things about it that I don't like, but there's also enough things about it that I do enjoy. Mm-hmm. That I would watch this movie again. Maybe I'm not necessarily super high on it the way that a lot of people are. I mean, I've listened to some other people podcast about it, and they're just effusive with their praise for the movie, and I've even uh heard some people t- say you know this movie moved them to tears and things like that i can't say mm-hmm. that i felt it as strongly as some other people but as somebody who just likes animation it still hit the spot man like i really enjoyed how this movie looks and yeah. the overall like visual vibes are enough to communicate the emotions and moods that i want to feel when i watch an action movie yeah yeah (sighs) do you have any recommended reading or viewing i didn't initially um because i i've I've said that i have no real interest or respect for the source material I, i guess if someone really wanted to dive into it uh, just because they want more spider people in multiverses, they could read The Spider First by Dan Slott. Um, I don't but you don't respect it. <laughs> I wouldn't well, recommend neither, it. Neither do I. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it purely out of like entertainment purposes. <laughs> but I guess if if you don't, if if the things that we've mentioned about the movie don't bother you and you want more of that, then I guess you could go watch that um, or read that. Or read that, yeah. I wouldn't recommend watching The Flash. <laughs> uh, here's this is gonna come off kind of funny, but but I'll say it. Having consumed so much multiverse stuff lately, the one thing that I read recently that I've been just inhaling is uh, Moonshine by Brian Azzarello and uh eduardo riso from image comics and that is a story that has nothing to do with multiverses so (laughs) i guess i could recommend that if you're just tired as tired if you're as tired of multiverses as i am and 
that's a comic that is about 1920s gangsters uh, selling uh, during Prohibition, but with werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> so no multiverse whatsoever. <laughs> nice. The furthest thing from a multiverse. <laughs> what do you got? Well, I guess the obvious things would be Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales comics. With Spider-Gwen, it's the original run by Jason Latour and Robbie Rodriguez. But I do have to preface it by pointing out that Jason Latour may be the kind of person that you may not want to read because of his sexual misconduct. So, yeah, the the Spider-Gwen stuff... I mean, I liked the comics, and I liked it before I knew what kind of person he was. So, yeah, I guess it's a little easier for me to like talk about them and say I enjoyed them because I didn't have that context when I originally read them. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, he was revealed to be a bit of a creep, yeah. and I would understand if you didn't want to read that run of Spider Gwen because of him. However, uh, Robbie Rodriguez. The co-creator, I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. And he's a great artist, so I feel like you can still pick it up and enjoy it for the art. Mm, mm. It's hard. Why can't our heroes just stop being jerks? <laughs> Why do that they have to make it question. so difficult for us? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah. As far as Miles Morales comics go, definitely the Brian Michael Bendis run. That's it's definitely one of my favorite comics. I feel like I've said this before, but it seems like ever since Spider-Man came out in the 60s, like every generation has had a great teen hero like in the in the 80s. I guess there was a what like the New Mutants and the Teen Titans and stuff in the, in the 90s. We had Static in the 2000s. We had Invincible and in 2010s, yeah. we had Miles Morales. So he's he's definitely high up there for me in terms of favorite teen superheroes. And the Bendis run, it's all worth reading. Uh, but if I were to highlight a specific story, like certainly the his origin story with Sarah Picelli, the I think she's the co-creator as well of Miles Morales. Like she's... She's an awesome artist, and you you do see her art replicated on the screen in a lot of the Miles scenes. Like they definitely pay a lot of homage to her work. But the the first the first arc of his run, I think, does a lot in terms of endearing him to the reader. Because here's the thing: like we mentioned earlier, how the Ultimate Universe version of Peter Parker died and was replaced by miles morales as spider-man but Mm -hmm. when you read that original story like the way it plays out is super compelling because what ends up happening in the comics is like bendis he you know he had been writing ultimate spider-man for like 10 years or more than 10 years at that point and he did a story called the death of spider-man where he has peter parker sacrifice his life to save aunt may from i think it was the green goblin and at that point you know he dies and 
his identity is revealed to the world and everybody mourns him and stuff. And then when the Miles Morales series begins, it kind of begins at this point before Peter has died and Miles gets his powers. And he's still a young teenager at this point and he's learning how to use his powers, but he's keeping it totally secret because he doesn't want to like do anything with them because it's potentially dangerous. And then all this stuff happens uh, with with the real with the original Spider-Man with Peter Parker and his battle to save uh, Aunt May from the Green Goblin. And Miles actually has an opportunity to help Peter at that point, but he chooses not to, even though he's got these powers. So Peter Parker is essentially his uncle Ben. Mm, mm. And I always thought that was a super compelling twist. Like if you were going to do a story where you introduce the new Spider-Man and you're going to kill the old Spider-Man, that's the way to yeah. do it, you know? Like, And yeah, yeah, it wasn't just one of those things where, you know, he Peter Parker dies and then Miles becomes Spider-Man and like that's that's it. Like it was a whole like really well thought out story with a lot of character development. There's a lot of dealing with the aftermath of Peter's death. Miles interacts and meets with Aunt May and Gwen Stacy. And yeah, like you can see the journey for the hero's journey in that story. And there's a lot of, uh, I feel like I would say just genuine emotion in it. Like as far as superhero stories go, like that's pretty high up there. Like that's what you want from a Cape comic. Right, right. I have those issues actually. So I, I found all of that in a quarter bin. So I did read that stuff. And yeah, it's 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 funny to think that the death of Peter Parker is technically his canon event, right? <laughs> Assuming that yeah, the Uncle Ben is the canon event that we're thinking of, but because I yeah, feel like it's... in the movies, right, in in Into the Spider-Verse, he does meet an older Peter Parker who's in, like, his 20s, and that Peter mm-hmm. Parker gets killed by Kingpin. Right, right, right. But it, it's not like... It doesn't it, hit him quite the same way. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hit him quite the same at all. Yeah. And yeah. we're actually kind of led to believe that his Uncle Aaron getting killed by Kingpin, like, that's his Uncle Ben moment, you know? Like, he... Exactly, exactly. Traveler gets shot, and then... Miles carries him off and then hears his dying words in an alleyway. And and yeah. that's his Uncle Ben moment. You know, keep moving forward. Or I think, what, what did he say? Was that his last words? Like, keep going or keep moving forward or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you see the fingerprints for that all over this movie because, you know, there's the scene where he's, he looks up and he sees the mural and it's a mural of his uncle's face, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that really sticks with him and by the time when you get to the end of it and he realizes this isn't my universe (laughs) um (laughs) it's not his dad that walks in it's his uncle and it turns out his dad was the one who died in this universe uh this is the universe without the spider-man actually that was was the thing i forgot yeah so that universe didn't unravel it did exist and it continued to exist so there's another there's another <laughs> thing that doesn't add up, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh man. <laughs> oh man. Well, maybe Beyond the Spider-Verse will 
put it all back together and make help us make sense of all these things. Well, now I feel like I got to watch it again with all this stuff in mind just to see if I can make sense of it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. You've given me homework. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll watch The Flash. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I probably Don't won't. Don't do it. It's not worth it. <laughs> yeah. Just, just tell me all the spoilers off. after we get off this call. I wanted to. I really wanted to. I'll, I'll, I will. I will. <laughs> All right. If there's nothing else, then yeah. If uh, there's anything you, any of you would like to contribute to the conversation, by all means, hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Uh, DM us on our Instagram at between the gutters, or you can tweet at us, and uh, we would love to hear from you. If you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, you know, by all means, give us a high rating and we would super appreciate that. That's right. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Next week, we will be talking about the Wonder Woman run by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang, as well as a variety of other artists. Peace out. Bye guys. Comrade, what now? <laughs> I was trying to do. I was not ready for that. You got to uh, tell me before you. <laughs> I was trying to do the Micro Machines guy. You remember the Micro Machines guy? <laughs> you remember those commercials for Micro Machines when we were I do. Kids? Yeah, I was trying to do our opening as the Micro Machines guy. <laughs> I was definitely not ready for that. <laughs> uh, I, I've been opening lately, so I've been, uh, you know, setting you up for your gimmicks. But I, I thought I'd, I'd throw in a little bit of a gimmick of my own this time just to just to see uh, how you would uh, fare. Just to see if you'd uh, improvise. <laughs> all right. All right. Give it to me again, and I'll, I'll try to respond in kind. Welcome, welcome, right? What now? <laughs> I can't stop laughing. Micro, micro machines, well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gents, this is the episode. This is going to be the entirety of the episode. <laughs> I got to edit this out. <laughs> okay. Okay. Straightforward conversation.
the, for those of you who are listening, uh, he did have a gimmick or, or, you know, some way to play that off, but he, he went with it. He went with what I put out there and he met me where I was at. That's the sign of a consummate professional. 